special treat for all of you we will revisit the most famous abduction case in ufology travis walton mike rogers and jennifer stein are all here and they are patiently waiting there's been a lot of talk about travis walton and if you've been following along mike rogers has been appearing quite frequently here on this program we also must give jennifer a warm welcome to the show as well as mr travis walton it is their first rodeo after all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Now, don't forget if you enjoy the show and want extra bonus content, please feel free to sign up at patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. Trust me, it's worth it. Now let's get down to brass tacks and bring in all the lovely souls here tonight. Hello out there. Ask. Are you guys alive out there? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, perfect. I'm glad you are here, Mr. Mike Rogers and Jennifer Stein. And of course, we are joined by another special soul out there, Mr. Travis Walton. I believe he is patiently waiting for us on the line. Travis, are you alive out there? I'm live. Ah, perfect. Thank you so much for being here, Travis. Nice to be with you. Yes, sir. And thank you all for being here. Matter of fact, I'm glad we all get to do this yet again under pale moonlight. Oh, yes. It's very romantic. <laughs> it really is. It's a very romantic night, boys and girls, I, I must say. And I want to start this off by saying to you, Travis and Mike, that this is a case that I've always been paying uh, lots of attention to throughout all the years. This is the case that got me into ufology, to be honest with you. This is one of the cases that has always blown my mind. And mm -hmm. yes, it's very interesting to finally have both you and Mike here this evening. And Jennifer, when I first talked to Mike here, I told him that I didn't know who you were at first. <laughs> and then I looked back and I thought, wait a minute, 
I know exactly who she is. She made that documentary about Zachariah Sitchin, if I recall. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I'm working on a new one now about Zach, uh, like a, a nice long documentary. That was just a piece I did for his uh, memorial. Very, very nice. And, of course, Mike, thank you for putting this together, as always. Thank you. Oh, yes. Now, Travis, we first tried to call you earlier, but you dropped the phone. Yeah, it happens. Don't worry. I drop the phone all the time. <laughs> Constantly. I can vouch for that. Yeah, Mike <laughs> knows. And Jennifer, I wanted to start things off here with you and with all of you really to give us just a, a brief introduction about who you guys are. And Jennifer, I want you to take the stage first. Well, I'm kind of shy, but I'll just say I'm a, um, I'm just a housewife from Radnor, Pennsylvania with a lot of passion and a lot of respect for the people who have uh, been on the front lines of the UFO field for a long time. And that is, of course, Mike Rogers and Travis Walton. Uh, Travis has the most profound UFO story. And when I had the opportunity to meet him a number of years ago, as a filmmaker, I thought to myself, gee, you know, a documentary has never been made about this. Maybe Maybe that's something I could dig into. And actually, I was frightened by the complexity of Travis's story and whether or not I could do a decent job because I didn't want to do I didn't want to do a job that disappointed Travis or Mike. And I, you know, I wanted to gain into a certain ex extent their respect. And I wanted to also do something that vindicated what they had experienced. And that was really my goal. And on top of that, I would say my other goal was to bring some bit of healing or closure to this event, which in many ways really ruined their lives and I'm sure challenged their relationship from time to time. If you just know a little bit about the story and what they had to go through with Philip Class. So, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I'm not really answering your question, Michael, a deacon. I apologize, but... <laughs> I'm a passionate filmmaker who doesn't like to do a bad job at anything I put my fingers on. So um, I took on this project a couple of years ago, I guess about six years ago now, and uh, hopefully I achieved my goals. I think for, for myself I did, and I hope I, I achieved uh, something that both uh, Mike and Travis are, are proud of. I mean, it's it screened well, of course, as you know, now it's won something like 28 mainstream right. film festival awards and that was just when i put it up in film festivals mm. which was for about a year um so i think i achieved my goal i think and you did yes and jennifer if i recall correctly one of the reasons why you got into this field was because you also had a bit of an experience as well and yes. back in 1975 the same year this correct. went down correct uh, mine was in um august 1975 I had an encounter with a rectangle of white light, which did not make sense. Um, it was very close, less than 500 feet from me. It was quite large, like 80, 90 feet long and about five feet high. It was undulating white light at 530 in the morning before it was light out. Although it didn't light anything up, it was in right outside my bedroom window where I lived with my parents in Culpsville, Pennsylvania. And this event uh, stayed in my gray box for like almost 20, 25 years until 
I ran into somebody. I I'd planned to visit with this fellow, this friend of mine. We had traveled in a musical roadshow for a year together. And uh, I went to visit him in Hawaii. And we were literally like smoking cigarettes and drinking wine and cooking dinner. And he turned to me and said, uh, you have to tell me what happened when we had that UFO experience. And I just, I was like 45 at the time. And I went, what, you know, what, what are you talking about? I was like, I, I remember my part, part of the story. I don't remember what you remember and you go write it down. Don't even tell me, don't mess with my memory. And once he blamed on paper with drawings, the same thing I had experienced, Michael, that's what changed my life. Right. I realized at that point I could either, you know, it's kind of like when people are diagnosed with cancer, right? They, they decide that they're going to give themselves permission in ways that they never did before. And I lived a very conservative life in what we call the main line of Philadelphia. And to talk about UFOs was just not something I did in my circle of friends. And stepping into this field would mean alienating myself and from family and friends and relatives and social connections and boards that I sat on and charities that I ran and all sorts of things. But I felt that my activism and my professionalism could do greater good beginning to unpack this reality that there weren't a lot of answers for. And I knew it took really brave people to step forward. And I just felt like if I was going to make my life matter and do something of importance, that I should step forward. And many things changed. You know, I became very good friends with Zachariah Sitchin, and I rekindled my relationship with Edgar Mitchell. And I went to UFO conferences and I read books and I started doing documentaries and Travis was maybe my third or fourth on, on this topic generally. And uh, I've never looked back. I've been very grateful that I made that decision. And in terms of your family, what was their initial reaction uh, to this interest of yours? I'm curious. Uh, well, initial and still, I would say. <laughs> yes. Um, I am, though, to a certain extent, the laughing stock of oh, uh, no. family events. Mm, and, no. you know, people come by and tease me and show me pictures and send me silly emails. Mm. And I have to allow that because at some point they will have their own realizations, just like we all do as we mature in life. You know, I, I think this is my... We all have these pearls that we polish, you know, in our ways that we become our own bodhisattvas and our, our own spiritual ways. And I think this is mine. And I have to allow them their pleasure. And when they're really ready for a good, serious conversation, they'll come to me. And the, uh, many of them have, but they always come to me alone, privately, right? Mm. They never discuss it in public when we're at uh, like a family Passover dinner or something, right? Sub subject never comes up, except they tease me. But then they'll say, can you meet me privately for lunch? I can't tell you how many people I have had from very conservative backgrounds, you know, heads of law firms, PhDs, doctors, uh, university professors call me and say, can you come for lunch? And, you know, can we talk? And I'll meet them. And like four hours go by and they bear their soul to me just because they want to tell somebody something. And I'm the only person they know they can tell. Mm -hmm. And I just say, well, thank you. And, you know, I, I give them credit for being brave enough to acknowledge that this was real, even though people who were with them now deny that, you know, they had a sighting or they had this experience or they had this abduction. 
I just say, you know, you're brave and we all have to digest this. And it's not going to be easy for humanity to do this, but we need to have courage. And uh, I get strength from seeing someone like Travis again and again and again. And like Mike and all the boys in the crew do the same thing, stand up and tell their story. And the story hasn't changed over 45 years almost. This is this is the 44th anniversary uh, this, this coming weekend. Uh, well, November 5th, I think, is what, next Wednesday? So no, that three days be, from now, three days from now, it'll be 44 years. And I, uh, one of the reasons I made this film, Michael, was that Travis and Mike and other boys uh, who were in, in the crew can um, have reunions and have screenings and, and participate in conferences or even do something up in Sholo or Phoenix or something and remind people, yeah, this was a real event. Just like Roswell, every year has this huge conference, right, that goes on and thousands of people show up. They do it because... This was a true story in Roswell. And the more you dig, the more pieces of the story continue to come out. And when it's a real story, that's when you know it is. And that's something Stanton used to say, too. And Lee Spiegel, the more you dig, the more you find. Very, uh, very interesting. And of course, Mike and Travis, I think we both know a bit about both of you. But I definitely just still want to ask you guys just uh, who is Mike Rogers now, before we travel into the past here. Mike, who are you nowadays? Well, uh, I'm the same guy, but... Uh, <laughs> same man. That's right. But uh, I'm 72 years old now. I was 28 back then. Right. And um, I've progressed in certain ways, and so has Travis. But uh, I uh, had my own first uh, hosted radio show last night on uh, KGRA. Uh, Jennifer was there for a few minutes and so yeah, was Travis. It was great. Yeah. And, uh, they said it was real good. In fact, uh, Bill came back on afterwards and told me that it had an awful lot of listeners. In fact, they he said it he had already got the ratings and it had come across as a uh, number five in the ratings. I don't know what that means exactly. Uh, cause I've never, you know, really experienced myself with the ratings, but he seemed to think it, it did really good, and so uh, I guess I'll hear more about that on Monday. But yeah, that that show was pretty good. It's two hours, and uh, excellent. Yes, we uh, we didn't do what I would normally do with the show, which I, I will start doing uh, next uh, Friday. It's Friday nights on KGRA between uh, uh, ten and twelve midnight on uh, Eastern, and uh, here in the mountain it's uh, uh, eight to uh, ten. Or actually a seven to nine is what it is, actually. Uh, our, our time doesn't change. Other times around the country will change tomorrow. But, um, yeah, Mountain Standard Time has uh, oh, always been for a long time, at least in Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. And um, anyway, uh, that's me. Uh, I have an awful lot to say. I, I hope I do because <laughs> I got the show to do weekly now. But uh, anyway, there I am. And uh Let's let's hear from Travis. Yeah, Travis. Let's definitely talk to you now here. And of course, Travis, I'm curious, what are you up to nowadays? Well, um, I am. Uh, I like to think of myself as uh, being the same guy. Right. Just 
ordinary guy. I'm a father and grandfather, and but um, it you know it it changed me profoundly, and uh, I initially tried to run away from it. You know, and initially uh, refusing to do uh, interviews and media made them say, "Well, what's he got to hide?" Mm-hmm. So I came out and did interviews, and then they said, "Oh, he's a publicity seeker." So, <laughs> uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't. But right. I really felt Can't obligated to come out and rebut some of the most absurd kinds of uh, uh, crap that was thrown at us. Uh, you know, things that if they'd have just done an ounce of research, they would have realized uh, that that's not possible. It's just totally contrary to the facts of the case. You know, I, I one of my favorite sayings back then was, Get the facts first. Is that too much to ask? Nice. But, but truly, you know, people uh, make up their minds, come up with a theory, and then gather points that they think support their theory. Yeah, they but they have got to go back and grab them, don't they? You, 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 you gather the facts and then see what sort of theory that leads you to formulate. Yes. And Travis, we will go into what the skeptics said at the very end of this program. Well, not the very end, but at the end of Mm -hmm. uh, this sort of a segment here that we will conduct. And before we go back in time here, I wanted to ask all of you if your Halloween was okay. Did you pass out candy? Did any of you dress up? What's going on with Halloween? Uh, Jennifer, let's start with you first. I always put a nice sign by my front door that basically says I can't come to the door because I'm usually upstairs editing or whatever, you know, and uh, I don't want to be it. I, you know, I don't want to be interrupted all night uh, by people knocking at the door and I don't have that many kids that come now. So I just uh, refill the candy bowl because inevitably whoever comes dumps the whole candy That's bowl. Right. Right. So uh, I just put a sign that says, please leave some for the next person. And they don't. So I I just <laughs> fill it throughout the night. But we had a pretty good blow of a storm here with lots of trees down. So uh, the early part of the evening was fine. And the later part, I was out there grabbing everything and bringing it in because it was about to blow all over the yard. Mm. But Mike, I spent it editing. <laughs> nice. Not bad. I only had one trick or treater, by the way. And Mike, what about you? Well, my Halloween was pretty uneventful because uh, my ex broke out my porch light uh, like oh my. eight or ten years ago. <laughs> and so, uh, and she broke it in a way that it can't be fixed really without replacing the entire thing. And so it's remained out. And that really doesn't work for anything except Halloween. And on Halloween, people don't come. <laughs> Mike. Uh, not, not too many. <laughs> there's nothing scarier than reality, right? That's exactly right. Uh-huh. And and Travis, what about you? Was your Halloween okay? Well, um, I think uh, Halloween has changed. I think oh, yeah. uh, trick-or-treating is a lot less popular than it used to be. They do these trick-or-trunk and, you know, they have little Halloween parties and get-togethers here and there. And, you know, just going door-to-door is a lot less popular. But uh, I did see one group, but they didn't come to my house. Uh, maybe maybe it was because it was too scary looking. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> no, no trick or treats. I had plenty of candy to to hand out, but nobody came. Yeah, it's interesting how much uh, uh, how much Halloween has changed in America uh, compared yeah. to yeah back like in early two thousands, late nineties. Uh, the streets used to be filled with kids, and not anymore. Yeah, oh, man. When well, I, I was a kid, 
this same we house, and, you know, people would get come the candy by all night. just nonstop streaming. Sometimes they'd keep doing it late into the night, way past nine mm-hmm. o'clock, you know, past midnight, but mm-hmm. not anymore. Yep, things have changed. Well, gentlemen, I definitely want to take a little trip through time now. Now, Travis and Mike, you two gentlemen were very green and wide-eyed back in 1975 when all this went down. I believe Travis must have been 21, 22 years old, right? Yeah, I was 22. Yeah, you were mm-hmm. 22. I was 28. And you were 28. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, we were green. You guys were well, very Mike green. Well, Mike was the boss. He, you know, he'd had years of experience with uh, Forest Service contracting and the rest of us. I mean, you know, one of the guys, uh, Dwayne Smith, he'd only been on the job three days. And another, you know, Steve Pierce, he was really too young for the job, but he, you know, lied to Mike about how old he was. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he was only you know, big for his age and got the job. He's a good worker. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, you know, yeah, all these people are pretty colorful characters anymore. Uh, there's two of us that that aren't here anymore. Two of us have uh, passed away. Uh, I was the oldest. I'm still here, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. I was just about to ask you about the other crew members that were there that night. So two of them passed. Yes. Yeah. Alan Dallas died here. Oh gosh, it's been like six years ago, seven years ago. Uh, Dwayne uh, Smith uh, died. He was over in Texas. You know more about that than I do, Travis. Yeah, I had a friend that was a private detective uh, locating for me because he had just disappeared and couldn't find him. But uh, I talked to him and said, hey, you know, I'd like you to come out with me. And uh, uh, I did an interview, which I taped. And uh, he said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I just want to do some uh, cosmetic dentistry before I do any appearances. And next thing I knew, he passed away on Thanksgiving. Bummer. By the way, I I do have a photograph of all you guys in the chat room now and i'm looking at mike and man mike you're so young and so is travis mm-hmm. my goodness yeah yeah i don't look like that now well John i'm even better looking just, now. had just gotten out of the navy <laughs> and uh Dwayne smith had just gotten out of the air force yeah yeah and when and you, john galette had just gotten mm-hmm. out of the navy that's what i said when you see photographs of yourself from that that sort of a, when that early gig back then in 75 what what is your initial reaction? Is it good? Is it bad? What's on your mind, Mike? Go ahead. Oh well, well you're talking about me looking way back then. Yes, sir. Uh, well, <laughs> I have so many thoughts on that. I don't know where to start. Uh, give me something specific. Well, when you look back at this photograph of yourself in your prime, I guess you could say your prime years here, Mike, and you're seeing yourself wearing the hard hat, do you miss those days at all, Mike? I miss well, all of Mike, them. Mike yeah. doesn't want to doesn't want to boast on himself, but you know, he <laughs> he entered some of these uh, logging festivals and he he did exceptionally well with uh, some um, rather unusual skills, uh, axe throwing and uh, axe throwing. Lo- log toss, uh, which takes a tremendous amount of strength. Damn, Mike, Mike was strong. I'll, I'll even mm-hmm. add to that. I, Mike and I have, of course, become friends. And since I do video, Mike sent me a video he made 
of you know he worked professionally as a as a tree man and a logger all of his life and he was able to take very difficult trees near or too close to houses and he could maneuver them in a way and take them down in the most cost effective and simple way in some cases even like ricocheting the tree so he cut off a major part of it and jump it over the house so it wouldn't yeah. land on the house but fly out off in the distance yeah. and it was like literally I was working out one day watching this video like literally dropping the weights going oh my gosh what is he doing and of course <laughs> it was it was amazing so he's he's mm. quite an, uh, an accomplished tree man uh, you guys are making me feel kind of uh self-conscious it's true. it's true you're you you really know your your stuff when it comes to trees well, mike was a strong man still is yeah, mike, mike and i uh entered a amateur boxing uh oh, damn. event after uh, uh after that happened and uh mike was unbeaten and he, he did uh really really well the, the well, travis no did really good too i think you were only beaten once right Barely. Well, they, they it, it ended in a draw, but uh, yeah, I could argue about that. But that's what the judges yeah. said. Wow, I never, draw. I never knew that about both of you. Interesting. Yeah, we boxed for two years, I think, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, the first four, I, I um, won by knockout, which means literally knocking mm -hmm. them off their feet. Right. But it was amateur, you know, guys yeah. that just probably hadn't done any more boxing than we had. Uh, Mike and I had uh, done martial arts, uh, um, you know, yeah, jujitsu, karate, all those kinds of things too. Budokan jujitsu. Wow, I had no idea. Very, yeah. very interesting. We very were cool. fierce guys. I mean, uh, well, I hey. studied taekwondo. <laughs> I got to be a brown belt in taekwondo. <laughs> Jennifer kicking, kicking guys over there. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the various schools, uh, instructors of different styles would come and go. So they 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 went, didn't hang around long enough for us to go very far with it. So we were switching styles well, all the time. Travis Nightball, he's 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 now he's being self conscious. <laughs> we both advanced pretty close to the top, uh, and uh, you know we really don't like to brag too much about that karate uh, jujitsu stuff. Uh, I don't even like to say much about boxing, actually. <laughs> well, I'm a big yeah. fan of boxing and uh, jujitsu and all these things. I've been in martial arts and boxing basically my entire life, and I love it. And um, I'm, I'm, I have to do it, to be honest with you, because naturally I'm a violent person, to be completely honest with all of you out there. Oh, really? So I wow. definitely have to train and get hit in the face every now and then. <laughs> so it's true. I've had a lot of fist fights, street fights. Uh, not not a lot, but you know, three or four, I guess. I'm still in getting in there, Mike. What's that? I, I said I'm still getting in those. <laughs> oh, okay. have you ever boxed? Actually, of course, in the ring. Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh cool. yeah. Well, we got I know ourselves the, a little circle here. I then. know the sweet science. <laughs> oh yes. And so now, gentlemen, I definitely want you guys to take us back to that night in 1975 when all of this went down, and again. You guys were in your prime. You guys were ready to take on the world. And then this happens. What is your recollection about that evening? Let, let's let start with you, Travis. Well, it was just long, hard days working, you know, the whole crew. Uh, 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 one one thing that is kind of uh, that the uh, uh, um, 
observers have uh, they treated us like uh, a group of buddies that conspired and that wasn't the, the situation at all like i said one of the guys had only been on the job three days and you know we had our had our differences there you know uh mike and and i had both uh, been in fights with with alan he was a rather uh hard Actual to get he was a hot-tempered sort of a guy and that scene in the movie where, you know, he drops a tree uh, uh, nearly on me was actually happened. So we weren't a group of buddies and uh, we were just, wow. you know. You guys were colleagues. Just give each other a hard time. It was just the friendly sort of uh, harassing back and forth. You know? Okay, typical, normal. A couple of guys on the crew were, uh, weren't anything. They were just good workers and got along with everybody, but... Uh, uh, Alan Dallas was the only hothead and, and the only one Travis and I had actually fought with before. Uh, there's some very interesting stories about that that nobody's ever heard. Uh, one particular story with Alan Dallas is that one day I went out to my car, when my car was my brother's car, and, and noticed that the hood was open. And we, we found that the, these headers, it was a racing car, and these special headers were gone. And uh, I and I didn't know for certain, but I pretty was sure I knew who it was. So Travis and I and my brother took off in uh, my van. Or I think it was no, my brother wasn't there, but it was Travis and I and somebody. Anyway, we went looking for Alan, and we found him uh, in town there. And he automatically kind of got an idea of what we were trying to do, so he got in his car and took off. Yeah, he had one other fellow with him, and and we chased him through town there and. Finally, he uh, Alan pulled up in this one at this one place, and before we could even get parked, he'd, he'd gotten out and gone in this house. And so I got out and I went out there to, to near the front door or where this guy lived. Uh, we didn't know who lived there. And Alan came out with these headers and he threw them at, at my feet and was cursing me. I can't remember what he called me, but uh, nothing good. No, and uh, he called me some some things that I didn't like too much, and so. I hit him, and it went from there. And uh, he uh, he he was acting so big and tough before then, and that 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 seemed to cool him down. And the interesting part about that was that after I pretty much kicked his butt and we left, uh, it was later on that night. Alan came to my house and said, "Man, I I, I need that job. Can I have my job back?" <laughs> I says, well, "Well, I didn't fire you." That's so funny. <laughs> So uh, the next day he was at work. <laughs> well, you know, the significance of the friction with Alan has to do with his initial trouble with the polygraph examiner. Ooh. His mom was yes. feeding him this idea that they were going to hang him for my murder because oh, yeah. at that point my body had not been recovered. And um, when they start questioning him about, have you ever considered harming Travis or hurting him? Well, he had, you know, we'd gotten a yes. fight there in Mike's backyard and, and uh, right before work, uh, you know, the, the whole crew had witnessed it. So he was going to get uh, he was going to be unable to say, no, I never considered harming Travis. And and so he figured that he was going to be the scapegoat for for my murder. And so he just threw a fit and, um, you know, walked out on his polygraph mm -hmm. test. He did come back and finish it with the same, um, you know, uh, state police examiner and passed with flying colors. But initially, yeah, that was in 93. That was the issue. He he, he was going to get hung for killing me. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll go over that in a moment here. 
we we definitely jumped around just a tiny bit. And Mike, uh, you were the driver that night, that evening, yes. I should say, right? Yes, I sure was. And, uh, you know, he started out the story there. Normally, you see, Travis and I have been on tour before. We actually did that for several years. Uh, and uh, I uh, would normally start out, you know, talking about it first because that seemed to be the best best order. And then he would take over later. Uh, anyway, so what I'll do is just kind of like start from the beginning, which he started to do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we were working that day. I had uh, six men working for me. And when we, you know, left to go to work, we had to pick everybody up. We had seven people in a truck. So there was four guys crowded in the back seat. Uh, it was an international crew cab, so it wasn't all that crowded. But uh, we had about as many people in there as we could get. And Dwayne Smith was a, a, a six foot four, I believe. So he was kind of like, Extra crowding in the back. <laughs> anyway. I think he was six five. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah he was guy. very tall. <laughs> yeah, tall guy. And the movie Fire in the Sky cut out his his character for that reason, I think. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we uh, we had out that day uh, uh, after work, and and we'd put in an awful long day. I mean, it was hard work, and um, I think we put in about ten hours that day. Uh, we were behind on the contract, and, and we were trying to catch it up. Uh, and uh, so we're heading out, and um, everybody's really tired. We get up the road a ways, and they see a light. Uh, I saw it too, but I got to keep my eyes on this road because it wasn't really a road. It was more like a trail. It was like a had humps of dirt plowed up in it by bulldozers because of the road was originally a logging road and it was closed by bulldozers. And so even to get into that area, we had to like shovel out these, at least one side of them. So we had to be very careful about going around it just that way. Cause otherwise we'd get hung up and, and then we'd be in trouble. And uh, that particular night we come around a group of trees and, and broke into a clearing and all of a sudden Travis yells out, stop the truck. And I couldn't see at that point what they were looking at because now, by now, this thing was not only, I mean, we couldn't see it until we got into that clearing, but then I couldn't see it even then because it was up the hill. It was like a an incline to where this thing was up above the ground, 15 or 20 feet, and the, the ground itself was a good uh, 15 or 20 feet or 30 feet higher than the truck. Uh, so I had to turn the truck off, and Travis is already walking very quickly up that way. At first, I thought everybody was going to get out. I looked at Alan, and Alan just had big, wide eyes because he could see what it was, and uh, the eyes weren't getting out the other side. <laughs> Nobody got out but Travis. And uh, so we watched him, and uh, I had to see what it was. So, like I say, I'd already turned off the truck, and then I leaned over, you know, and then I saw it for the first time, and I was extremely uh, amazed by what I saw. Uh, and, and my first reaction was not fear because it was, it was really quite pretty. It was a, a mechanical looking thing. I mean, a, a UFO, a flying saucer with the traditional, uh, uh, pie pan lip to lip. You know, there was a, looked like there might have been a, some, what of a dome on top and it was lighted and it was dark by this time. Yes. And, and Mike, I'm sorry to cut you off, but to add more context to the story, it was around 6 p.m. if I recall correctly. So it was kind of dark. And, but you yeah. had a pretty good view, right? It, it wasn't totally dark, it, but it almost was totally dark. Uh, I guess you call that twilight. Right. And parts um, of it were glowing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, part of the UFO was glowing. And by the time Travis got up there, it was lighting up him. And uh, it actually were lighting up the truck. Uh, but uh, 
it was a rather soft glow, and uh, which just made it kind of all the more eerie. It's funny that uh, Halloween was just two nights ago. <laughs> I guess really, I keep my mind goes back to Halloween like that because this happened just a few days after Halloween. Right, and we we are in November. It's almost November fifth, Mike. Yes. When it happened, three days from now. That's right. Crazy. And um, I mean, for us, when it happened, we it, it was just past Halloween. You know, for real. And uh, of course, it was that time of year. It was it was cold, especially after the sun went down, and. Um, it was just kind of freezing that that particular night. There wasn't much of a breeze, uh, kind of calm. But Travis stood there looking up at this thing, and I could tell it was just like right above him. I mean, I could tell that too. Very, you could see that he was right there. It was getting as close as he could. There was a logging slash pile right there in front of him. Uh, I could prevent him from going any further, and. Uh, he just he would look back at the truck once, I believe, and and he, he'd look at like he would look back like saying, uh, "He's just seeing his eyes. Uh, what am I doing here? Maybe I maybe I shouldn't be doing this." <laughs> right. And and uh, he crouched down right after they crouched down, kind of forward, uh, like there was a log sticking out of this this pile. This this debris pile was pushed up logging debris, so there was some pretty good sized pieces of, of log in there. And it was a large, large pile. I mean, and uh, so he crouched down, kind of like, like as if he was needing to hide <laughs> from behind this log. And and uh, and then and then just a few seconds later, he stood up. Now by this time, everybody in the truck is yelling at him, you know. Uh, and, and and the thing starts moving too. That's well, that's what really scared us and what got him going. And it wasn't just it moving; it was also because it. Uh, started making sounds, louder sounds. When we first pulled up there, I, I could hear a little bit of something. But when we uh, were quiet there, or as quiet as we could <laughs> with everybody yelling at him, it started making a lot more noise and very strange noises. And and besides that, and what really got us was this rumble that I could feel through my hands uh, on the steering wheel. And uh, anyway, he stood up right then and uh, at the same time kind of turned like he's going to head back to the truck because this, by this time, this thing was looking like it was winding up to do something. We didn't know, but it was looking very ominous and it hit him. It's a, a bolt of energy came out uh, from the bottom of this thing, a very sharp edged uh, bolt of light. It, it was straight edged, but, but it wasn't like a lightning. It, you know, it looked more like a deliberate, I could call it a ray maybe. And it hit him in that kind of the head and the chest and uh, blew him up and back like as if an explosion had gone off in front of him. And uh, he hit the ground, uh, you know, 10 feet away. Uh, some of the guys in the truck said 15 or 20 feet away, and the skeptics jump on that. You know, that's not a, that's an inconsistency. No, it's not. When we say 10 feet, we mean from his feet to where his feet ended up. He's like six foot uh, one, and which put his head back uh, at least uh, uh, close to 16 feet. So that explains that real well. <laughs> right. And and sorry to cut you off here, but Travis, what, why did you leave the truck? Uh, what, what, what made you leave the, the truck at all? I, I got to know, Travis. <laughs> well, that's hard to explain because it was uh, so unwise and, and impulsive. But uh, um, 
There, there had been a little incident before where uh, a bear had run across the road, and, ah. and Mike had yeah. to stop to keep from hitting it. So I jumped yeah. out and acted like I was chasing it. Of course, it wasn't. You really were chasing it from so. me. It was running from the truck, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was well, just kind of a, a little bit it. of macho bravado, a bunch I of see. guys uh, trying to impress each other, and. Uh, Wait, also, so, you were really curious, Travis. I mean, you thought it'd be gone. You thought it would take off before you had a chance to get a really good look. Yeah, I thought it was going to take off, and oh, I just okay. just thought I could see it up close and that it'd be taken off even as I approached. Ah, so you thought this thing would just fly away, and you just wanted to get a better view, basically, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so was that scene in the movie accurate, Travis? No, because uh, the blast of energy was a momentary uh, uh, burst, and I didn't actually see it. I, I, it knocked me unconscious mm. immediately. I just felt this electric shock, this stunning force. But um, different guys on the crew were interviewed by different deputies, and they gave different descriptions in the, in the police file. Uh, one described it as looking like a foot-wide beam hitting me. Another compared it to uh, a bolt of lightning. And another actually described it as looking like a long blue flame. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And but, but uh, those are all I good descriptions. Though. One of them said it was the brightest thing he'd ever seen in his life. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes, it certainly was. And by the way, in the chat room, there is a user by the name of Dane who says, I wonder if Travis saw a glowing orb controlling the ship. Did you see anything else around uh, the craft that Travis? No, I didn't see any glowing orbs, uh, but uh, it doesn't mean there wasn't one, I, but True. not in my view. And, um, it took me years to kind of try to figure out what it was doing there and what actually happened. It doesn't make sense to me that it would fire a weapon at me. I mean, I probably posed absolutely no threat whatsoever. So what what was the reason for this? Well, it was only in the last few years that I discovered that this part of the rim country here, the Sigris National Forest, has the highest frequency of lightning strikes over land of any place in the United States. The only place with a higher uh, frequency of lightning strikes is over the Everglades, and that's over water. So uh, this propensity for lightning to strike made me think that what if this craft generated some kind of an electromagnetic field right, that right. triggered a strike. Okay. And it was a secondary discharge that got me. By, by the way, gentlemen, there is a Heber, California, about five miles from my location. I know that, yeah. <laughs> kind of weird, right? Yeah. yeah. And it smells like cows. Yeah, uh-huh. a dairy farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, Lots yeah. of cows, more than the people. It, it, is there a slaughterhouse there? There's a big, yeah, there's a slaughterhouse there, and there's probably more cows than there are people. Wow. Pretty amazing. <laughs> and after this happened, by the way, the book, The Walton Experienced, what, what, Experience was released in, I may, I'm thinking 78, right? Is that right? That's right. 77. 77. Oh, okay. 77. I did not know that. And of course, it was later turned to the film Fire in the Sky for those that don't know out there. And I still remember watching the movies back in the 90s. 
Well, well that fire in the sky, actually, mm-hmm. that name came from this um, lightning frequency. We had um, stopped to put a fire out that where one of these trees had been struck by lightning the night before on our way to work. You know, it wasn't, um, yeah. it wasn't uh, all that unusual. Um, if you're if you're standing next to a tree that's been hit by lightning along that rim road, you can probably see the next tree that's been hit. And um, mm, very yeah. often it doesn't kill the tree; it just explodes mm. the um, the bark in a in a line down the tree that uh, just turns the sap to steam instantly, and it, it explodes the bark off the tree. But very often it can survive it. But uh, the frequency you know, Trace, of lightning Tracy also Tormay. explains what they might have been doing there. And for a moment and, here, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You know, it's it's you know going to seem kind of late to mention this later, but uh, um, I did a a show with uh, Rob Lowe, and him and his sons had um, were going out and investigating unusual phenomena. Yes. And it was a two part show when it aired. Uh, my part, and then the second half of the show was this lady that sells crystals at uh, rock and gym shows. Mm-hmm. But what what Rob Lowe said uh, as a segue between the uh, the two segments was, he said Travis told me that the aliens were in the area looking for fulgurite, which was a total surprise to me because I did not know what it was. <laughs> but I, I looked it up online, and fulgurite is a type of crystal that's formed when lightning strikes the earth. Ah. You got millions of degrees and millions of volts creating crystals that are not generated uh, geologically. So that would explain what they might have been doing there. I even saw a reference in a crystal book um, here at a conference recently where they were saying this crystal is uniquely uh, supposed to have the uh, properties of having something to do with interdimensional stuff. Mm-hmm. Very strange. I, very, it's, it's I have un- no idea how they know that yeah, the it, case, but that's what the book said. It's very unusual well, that you just said that because there is someone in the chat room, Ian Alberto, says, does Travis think aliens could be interdimensional beings instead of from another galaxy? Well, yeah, you know, um, there's all kinds of theories that to me, it's possible that aliens are actually us from the future, you know, just coming back in I, time. I could see that, yeah. <laughs> I can and, definitely you see know, that. people have proposed that as an explanation. That's not impossible. But uh, people that are grasping for that kind of an explanation are people who want to uh, pretend we're alone in the universe, and that's highly unlikely, too. But um, right. the interdimensional thing has to do with how you how are these um, um, extraterrestrial civilizations going to cross the vast distances between them and us? It would take years, years. At near light speed. So, um, who knows what kind of technology uh, they might come up with in the future? Um, virtually everything technological that we have is, you know, maybe less than two hundred years old. I mean, two hundred years ago, all we had was fire. Yeah, there was just virtually nothing technological, but mm-hmm. but fire. We didn't even have electricity. So. Um, mm-hmm. Um, Michio Kaka was on, uh, I think it was uh, Larry King, um, 
but he was doing an interview and said people keep imagining these uh, civilizations as possibly being maybe a few hundred years ahead of us, but uh, based on the age of these star systems, they could be hundreds of thousands or millions of years ahead of us. Right. We we couldn't begin to guess what kind of technology uh, they might have. Uh, in the vast uh, future. Right. He talks about type two and type three civilizations out there. And I'm pretty sure he might be right about some of those theories of his. And Jennifer, to kick it over to you really quickly here. Well, just one, one comment. Oh, go real ahead, quick. Travis. You go know, ahead. not all of those uh, extraterrestrial civilizations are more advanced than that. Some of them are cave aliens. But those are not the ones that are coming here. Yes, you no. think there there might there might be some primitive uh, alien beings out there, which I think you might be right about that. It's more than possible. Yeah. I don't rule that out one bit. And Jennifer, to kick it over to you really quickly here, the first book, The Walton Experience, was released in 1977. Around that time, did you ever hear about that case when it was sort of in, in its infancy, per se? Well, yes, I did. I was actually at the University of Arizona oh, in damn. 1977 okay. and Tucson going to school. That's right. Um, That's right. And I was a science textiles major. So as much as I didn't really follow the UFO story that much, I'd already sort of had my experience. I knew that we probably weren't alone in the universe, but I didn't know how to digest it. I hadn't yet given myself permission right, uh -huh. to go forward with it. And then in 1993, when the film came out, I saw the film and I went, oh, I remember, I remember, you know, mm -hmm. this was going on. And um, so, you know, I, I was aware, but uh, I hadn't really begun to give myself yeah. permission to dig in. You haven't yet. jumped in just yet. Right. Right. And when that film did come out, I still remember watching it so many times when it would come out on satellite there. And I still remember that that had a lot of people talking. It gained like a cult-like following really quickly. Yes, it, it, it really did. And I, I think, you know, as much as it di distorted the actual story and made it scarier than it really was, that's what, you know, Hollywood producers want to hold on to the rights to do because that's how they sell movie tickets. Um, but the fact that it sort of paralleled the true story was interesting. And I think it really served to help expand awareness in the mainstream culture about the fact that Travis was a real person that, right. you know, and, and of course they did many, you know, TV shows, interviews, they went around the world promoting it, you know, um, uh, Paramount really did do a decent job uh, in getting the guys to help promote the film, which I think was a good thing they did. But I kind of gained the knowledge I have now about that retrospectively when I stepped forward to do the documentary because no one had ever bothered to do a really good documentary. And uh, I just thought, you know, it's, somebody needs to because future generations aren't aren't reading. I mean, the generations we have now aren't reading, right? True. People get their, the younger culture gets their information and sound bites. Audiobooks, right. So a decent documentary that can stream online and things like this, or people can pick up on Netflix or other places, that will help to continue to educate generations to come. 
And uh, I thought it was important to do a decent job with the people who were still alive because we were losing them. And we've even lost some more. Right. Uh, Of course, we just lost Stan Friedman and we lost um, Marlon Gillespie, who was the the sheriff at the time of the incident. And I'm not sure if we still have um, the polygraph examiner, Cy Gilson alive or not. He was in his 90s when I interviewed him in Tucson. So I knew these people would be gone soon. Right, right. It was really important to to get them on tape telling their story. Well, I'm glad you did. And there's no other case more famous than this one than uh, Travis is here with Mike and the crew. However, maybe the only one that sort of even comes close is perhaps the Betty and Barney Hill case. Right. Yeah, that's the only one I think that's probably maybe as famous and mike he has his own opinions on that case which is always interesting to ask him uh betty and barney hill case yeah, yeah you always well i, well, I have uh, a lot an addition really it's not uh like a introspection thing it's just you know i i met betty hill one day uh when we were i think we were in connecticut or something a ufo convention there and uh she personally told me about an experience she had with a bigfoot and I've had a little bit of trouble, you know, because it's hard for me to believe Bigfoot is a real thing. Uh, you know, there's so much, you know, nobody's ever come up with anything. This is supposed to be something that actually lives in the forest and people see it all the time. And it just seems to me, you know, that it put it this way. I just don't really think it's real. I, I don't say it can't be real, but I say that it, it looks like it's not. And so when, when she uh, said that to me, I thought, oh, you know. You think that? And, and she had some, uh, I think she had more than one experience. And and uh, it just kind of shone a little bit of a bad light on her, but not necessarily on the, the UFO event, you know. Uh, but that's that's the only addition I have to that. Understood, Otherwise, understood. You know, pretty good story, yeah. And Jennifer, where do you align yourself in terms of the mythical creature Bigfoot? Well, I it's a big question mark for me. I've never had a personal encounter, although I know people who have. I've read books about it. I think there's a lot that we have yet to understand in the field of consciousness. Um, I myself have had some pretty strange deja vu and and telepathic precognitive events that if I went to try to explain them to someone, they would say, oh, she's she's lost her rocker. She's out of her mind. But yet beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that these things were real for me. So I think until we yet further know how to unpack and understand consciousness and telepathy, um, we know that there's communication that goes on, say, between animals, right? right. Uh, between one another. And sometimes like mothers and, and their babies will feel that they have a telepathic understanding or between two twins, they'll know something that's happening to the other twin at the same time. And many people that have studied the whole Bigfoot scenario believe that this is a highly telepathic um, being of some sort that may be primitive to our uh, our ways of thinking, but in other ways might be much more developed psychically or telepathically. And that's the story that comes to mind is the very, uh, there's some famous plane crash in Alaska where this guy is trapped in a plane and starving to death and freezing to death. And this this Bigfoot being brings him food, brings him a fish and brings him berries and 
brings him, mm. you know, nuts and things like this and cracks them and hands them to him and keeps them alive until um, rescue services can get to him about three days later. So, you know, there are these pretty well-documented stories. And I tend to think that until you're there and have the experience, it's, you know, we need to follow the facts. We can't really get involved in speculation and judgment because then we close ourselves off to the potential of the reality, just as we have in the mainstream culture to the whole UFO phenomenon for 70 years, correct? Yeah. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't be completely closed-minded on the subject, even though Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster are two things that I'm kind of ruling off of existence. However, when I hear stories about, let's say, for an example, this three-year-old, I believe his name was like K.C. Hathaway, who was found by rescuers. I forget what time it was. This was a while back, and it was pretty cold out there in North Carolina, and he had went missing, and he apparently said that he was helped by some sort of a creature. He says it was a bear, but bears don't do that sort of thing. So who knows what it, it was? Right. Could have been a Bigfoot. Who knows, right? He, uh... Well, here's here's the thing. You know, Game and Fish tells us that there is a bear per square mile on average in the state of Arizona. But I know outdoorsmen who have gone for years and never seen a bear. Right, right. Uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It just might mean that they're better at hiding from us. <laughs> so, so Travis, you're you're kind of on board that there might be a Bigfoot, possibly. Well, the, the, the most popular theory is that um, since there's an association with UFO sightings, right, right, that it might be some sort of interdimensional type where there's a temporary crossover and it's not anything that lives there all the time. But I've never seen anything like that. However, there was a young fellow that was on another uh, woods crew and uh, headed um, down uh, the, the dirt road out to the contract that his father had. He looked You're over and he said what here? he described as being a Bigfoot, a big hairy man with a sort of a sheep-like face was wow. his description. But it really yeah, freaked him out. He was extremely disturbed by it. He was never into anything paranormal before or after. And he was actually kind of a religious uh, sort of a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, he insists he saw it. So, But I've never seen it. Interesting. What, what were you saying, Mike? Well, yeah, he's talking about a fellow named Jody Crandall. I know him well, really I well. I've worked with him without their permission. That's the reason I didn't mention his name. But oh, yeah. Mike. <laughs> oh, well, uh, he's talked about that a lot to a lot of people. Well, so. I don't know if he'd want it on, on the radio, but whatever. You uh, never well, heard this. I think he would. He's uh, he's entered a lot of logging contests that I've been in, and he's a fairly uh, open person. I don't think he'd worry about the name at all. <laughs> Right on, right on. And you you brought up religion. Now I am curious, and I'll mm-hmm. start with you, Jennifer. Jennifer, are are you religious by any chance? Well, I would say I'm more spiritual than okay. religious. Okay. Um, 
I've, uh, I'm Jewish by, you know, my, my background, I actually converted to Judaism because I thought it made more sense than anything else. Cause it has a big component of human history to it. That is not in, uh, in debate anywhere. And actually Judaism doesn't really require you to have a blind faith or an acceptance in something you don't really know. It just gives you kind of a code of ethics, uh, and, uh, and a human history of ethics that you can follow and teach your children with. But there's also a really interesting component of mysticism and Kabbalah within Judaism that explains mystical experience. And that's what got my attention when I was in my early 20s, because I'd had a number of out-of-body and mystical experiences. I lived on a yoga ashram. I had telepathic and precognitive events happening with the uh, the Amrit Desai, who was the yoga teacher or the guru at the ashram. So I knew that there were odd things. Like I said earlier, you know, if I really shared them all, people would think I was really off my rocker. They think you're nuts, right? Yeah, they they would. They would. But, you know, when they were in in the context of my life, they made sense. And it made me curious about, okay, what's the nature of personal reality? You know, like I read the Seth material and Seth Speaks and things like that. And I read some of the Ramtham material. I was really a seeker spiritually quite at a quite young age because my parents were atheists. They didn't really know what to teach me or offer me or give me. And um, so I had to kind of do the hunt on my own. And of course, lived on a yoga ashram, got into Ram Das, right? Be here now, these sorts of things, studied TM. So I would say I am very spiritual. I'm probably a combination somewhere between a Buddhist and a Jew, understanding the overlap between those two. Right, right. And I think that um, there are a lot of spiritual traditions on the planet that can offer us insights into consciousness and human evolution, and that we're here for a purpose, and that what we do here matters, and how we behave and orchestrate our lives and what we attempt to accomplish and give to others makes a difference. You've been to Sedona, Arizona, correct? Several times. It, I yes. was about to say, you sound like a, a lady that I once spoke to out there. You sound just <laughs> like her in a way, which well, is a good it, thing. Maybe it was me. You never know. I'm right. You mm-hmm. never know. And uh, Travis, uh, I'm curious, are you religious, Travis, or were you at any time growing up parents religious? What's the deal, Travis? Tell us. Yeah, I, w- I was religious. I was raised uh, that way. Um, my uh, uh, younger brother went on a mission for the church. Uh, my Older sister uh, taught Relief Society, yes, uh, and heck, even my oldest brother taught Sunday school. But I, I never was that deep into it. Um, um, I would consider myself more spiritual than religious. It's just um, looking for a system that explains everything uh, more broadly. Uh, I think... Uh, the doctrines are a little bit too specific to include everything. Yeah. Amazing. And Mike, go ahead. Are you religious at all today or in the past? What's up? Well, I certainly was in the past. Uh, <laughs> you know, that era that Travis is talking about there, we were kind of like easy writers, you know? I love that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, but uh, uh, That played into the film too, but... Uh, I started out pretty, I mean, I was born a Mormon and uh, I reached, you know, the legal age of reason somewhere around 19 or 20. And 
And a few years later, I uh, actually had myself excommunicated from the Mormon church. Oh, damn. Even though I had never done anything really wrong in my life, uh, I, I, you know, but the reason I did is because I was a realist. I have been a realist uh, since birth, uh, really. And uh, uh, so, you know, even way before this UFO incident with Travis and I, uh, I, uh, I just was such a realist that I, I just couldn't, I could no longer accept the Mormon religion doctrine-wise, but I have never let go of it as far as a good way to raise children, a good way to live. Uh, those people are very, very humble. They're very, very good people. And, uh, you know, right there in Snowflake especially, that is such a good place for all that. And Travis doesn't mind it too much because he's chosen to live there ever since. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we got into later life, after we went through that rebel sort of period that Travis and I both went through, uh, I, I was became spiritual, but I remained a realist. So when that incident happened to us, that was an extreme eye-opener, extreme. I was going to say uh, that must have been a real eye-open, eye-opening experience for, for both of you, for sure, no doubt. Yes, definitely. My goodness. So now we are at the part here in the story where you were hit with this blue beam, uh, Travis, and basically Mike drove off. I always giggle about that. He he mm-hmm. hightailed it out of there. He went 90 going north. Well, that was the smart thing to do. You know, it, uh, it would have been foolish to get somebody else killed to save what they all believed was a dead man. Uh, they, uh, that that blast was so violent that uh, uh, pretty much all of them figured it had killed me. Mike, yes. did you, Mike, did you think he was gone? Yeah, I thought when we went back to the site later that we would find him dead there. Oh, my. Uh, but that's how we all thought it killed him, every one of us. He's like you said, very, yeah, Kenny, very violent. Kenny said he wasn't afraid it was going to come back. He was afraid of what my corpse was going to look like, all burned yeah. up or blown apart yeah. or something. That's right. All toasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a cattle mutilation uh, case, right? Right. Yeah, or just the, the blast of energy, you know, what, what, how much harm that would do, you know, to uh, be hit by that. Uh, yes, apart. right. And, Mike, and when this happened... You, did you feel any initial pain when this happened, or did you instantly just go out? Well, I don't remember any pain. I remember tremendous fear. I remember panic like I'd never experienced before. Oh, I meant, I meant Travis. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah I, I lost consciousness. I felt the, the stunning force. You know, I'd been hit by you know electrical shock, you know, spark plug and working on chainsaws and cars and stuff. I, I know what it's like to be... It, electrocuted and I know what it's like to be hit with uh, something you know you know I've, I've had some motorcycle accidents and I know what a big impact feels like and that's that's what it was like um, um, John said that my body fell in his words like a sack of meat like there wasn't a bone in my body damn that's a good description and, you know, uh, they say that uh, Steve, Steve's first remark was, it got him, uh, which is the, what you would say if you'd shot a deer, you know, you got your deer, you know. Yeah, you were uh, basically ragdolled by this. Mm-hmm. It was wedged out. My goodness. And then you hightailed it out of there, Mike, and you were driving yeah. off. What were the other guys telling to you, telling you when you were driving off, high-speeding out of there? Well, it was a little hard to make it out because there was uh, five guys, one in the front seat, and uh, 
four in the back, and and uh, everybody was talking at one, screaming at at once. Uh, I I couldn't really, you know, periodically I could make out, you know, words. Basically, those words were saying, you know, get the hell out of here. What the hell just happened? You know, uh, uh, people would just, I mean, these guys were just so completely blown away by this. I, Travis got blown away. We were blown away, too, you know, by the emotion of it. And um, and it was blind panic. Uh, I didn't go very far down the road before I started thinking, you know, where the panic kind of wore off. And, and I started using my brain and and I, I slowed down a little bit, and then I finally stopped about a quarter mile away. And um, that flight down that road was hellish. I mean, that movie Fire in the Sky did a pretty good job, but in the reality, reality, it was it was actually worse than that. Uh, we actually hit these humps of dirt. You know, as like I was saying before, you we in order to even get in there, we had to use shovels and stuff to bring those pile those humped up piles of dirt down a little bit. Uh, and, and I couldn't hit those right going out of there. I mean, I was going like 30 or 35 or so, and and we were literally flying. We were catching air over a couple of those humps, and uh, so bad that one of them that I, I tried to get around, uh, we flew over it, and the truck came down so hard that I couldn't keep clear, and I, I knocked a mirror off the truck and, and sideswiped the truck on a tree, Stuff like that. It was uh, it was pretty violent. It was a uh, it was very hectic, very very so. Yeah. And when I when I did stop, these guys were just uh, they didn't know what I was doing. Why or am I stopping? That's basically what I heard from them. And uh, one of the guys, Steve Pierce, didn't say anything. Like uh, every time I glanced back, especially after I stopped the truck and I glanced back, uh, Steve Pierce had he looked like he'd been crying. I mean, he was just. He was traumatized, put it yeah, that way. That's what happened. And when we went back to the site, uh, you know, unlike the movie, which has us, those guys getting out and me going back alone, that is a complete reversal of what happened in reality. Uh, I mean, imagine yourself if that happened to you and then you have the choice of getting out of the truck and standing there in the dark after something like that happened. No. They all got back in the truck, and uh, it was unanimous. Nobody even thought about it. They just got back in the truck when I told them we were going back. And uh, so we did go back, and uh, there was a, a kind of a quiet after that. Going back, it uh, it was just quiet in the truck, amazingly quiet. And we pulled that truck up into that clearing and shone the light up in there, and uh, Travis wasn't there. I expected to find a dead body. I expected to find, like he said, you know, who knows what shape, you know, a, a smoking corpse, you know. True. And uh, we got out. We walked. We walked, walked around that clearing. Uh, with we had one flashlight, but uh, and we all walked around that clearing, looking for Travis and shouting for him. And we were pretty much in a bundle. I mean, we didn't. We weren't like arm in arm, but you know, close together. And. Uh, Within, you know, touching each other, really, uh, as far as like our shoulders and stuff. But uh, when when we couldn't find him there, you know, uh, John Gallette says it best. Uh, well, they all knew what happened. Uh, I, I, I went to my knees. I broke down. And uh, it wasn't so much that uh, he wasn't there, you know, wondering what happened to him. It was, in a way, it, it was a, a breakdown of relief that he wasn't a charged smoking corpse. Yeah, and, uh, I, my bad. So, you know, that's something that nobody's ever said before. Uh, I haven't really said it before, uh, at least not recently. Uh, but so when I broke down, it was, it was two things. It was, you know, the what the heck happened to him? 
And it was also a relief that we didn't find a smoking, destroyed body there. And um, that's what it was about. But I, I was very humiliated by Right, right. And when you went missing, Travis, there were many people searching for you at one point. Uh, people even thought the group had murdered you, Travis. Yeah. Even, even my family was divided on that. My oldest brother, Don, was, you know, made some pretty violent uh, uh, accusations of some of the crew. He got had in the a uh, little bit of an incident there with Dwayne Smith, uh, but you know he was out there basically looking for my body. And, but um, my uh, brother, that was closer to me in age, uh, was much more believing uh, of the crew. He, he he already knew Mike to some extent, and um, he had, he'd had a sighting of his own eight or ten years before, so. Um, he, you know, was not disbelieving in the whole idea. Yeah, he so, actually worked for me. Uh, he didn't, I wasn't just a little bit familiar with Dwayne. I was very familiar with Dwayne. He actually worked for me for quite a while uh, before that, uh, two or three years before, four or five years before, actually. And uh, But not not at the same time I was working. No, no, not the same time. Nope, not the same time. Very, very interesting. And of course... In that part of the movie, there is a scene when, well, I'll talk, well, we'll talk about the abduction in, in a moment here, but I did want to ask you first, when you did make that return, we're, we're skipping ahead here, but I'm curious, there's a scene where you are at a telephone booth. Did that scene actually happen? Yes, but I was not naked. Hollywood had to embellish that with nudity, but uh, um, I... <laughs> was wearing the same clothes that uh, I had been taken in. And my brother even had the presence of mind to try to, uh, uh, you know, bag them up for forensic analysis. But uh, there was so much pressure about other things, media stuff, that it got overlooked. And uh, the bag that they were sealed in um, got torn open. And so that plan was abandoned. Yes, and... Travis, when you first initially came home and, and told your family, what was their reaction uh, to it all? Did they believe you? Well, I was I was in terrible, terrible shape. I was hanging by a thread. I, c I couldn't hardly speak. I, I couldn't finish a sentence. And my brother knew that uh, the sheriff's department were not going to be gentle in interrogation, and he was determined to get me medical help uh, before any sort of uh, discussion with the sheriff's department. Strangely enough, there was another uh, individual who saw this. Uh, Jennifer, you said there was an FBI agent in the area who saw the craft too. That's right. That was uncovered by Tracy Torme when he was preparing, you know, he was doing pre-production research on the whole story. And he uncovered this. Uh, Travis can speak a little more to it than I can because uh, Tracy is the one who recounted this story to Travis. But I thought it was an interesting confirmation that yeah, he was uh, deer hunting, these, um, these but uh, military intelligence and uh, definitely had high uh, serious credentials. But there were also a few other sightings, uh, hunters, campers, fishermen in the area that that wrote uh, reports and turned them into the sheriff. 
but I don't know if he followed up on any of those. They were just people who saw the craft leaving or passing over. And in the chat room, the other cider says, what did the ship look like if they haven't described it yet? Uh, I think he's asking uh, something else here. But uh, Travis, what what was this ship like exactly? Uh, now I'm curious. Well, to know. it was a metallic disc, and it was extremely smooth. And like Mike said, in spite of the fierce, fearful situation, uh, we, I think everybody was struck by the beauty of it, the, the perfection. Um, smooth as glass. Interesting. All one surface, uh, some of it opaque and some of it giving off light. It's uh, I've, I've compared it to uh, if you're watching a television with a glass screen and you can see the window, if the window, uh, if you have a lighted window in the room, uh, that's re- reflecting off the surface of the screen at the same time you're seeing the picture. Uh, mm, the, the light that's... You know, coming from the television. So you got two sources of light. The, this glow, it was, it gave the whole area kind of an eerie, um, uh, otherworldly feel. And at the same time, it was reflecting the surrounding trees. That's um, right. Um, hard to describe, but it's giving off light and reflecting at the same time. And Mike, what is your recollection of this craft? Just exactly what he said. I actually illustrated uh, more than one, several times uh, that craft, and I couldn't do it justice. And, and I developed finally the ability to almost create a photograph. Uh, I've done quite a bit of that illustrating, and uh, I, I have never been able to justify the actual look of that craft. I tried, and what he was describing there as it had had this uh, glass-like surface in it, and it had areas that were lighted. And at the same time, it was reflecting the the foliage, the the ground, and everything around. In fact, you can see Travis's reflection in the surface of that craft. There's um there's actually a little graphic of it for people who are listening. If they want to go to TravisWaltonTheMovie.com and then go to the press release page and scroll down a little bit. I have something called a um, electronic press kit. And in that, they can just see a picture of it uh, that was started originally from one of Mike's drawings that he uh, offered us to use in the film. And that's yeah. at TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. TheMovie.com. And then go to the press release page and go to the electronic press kit. And you'll be able to see a little drawing of it there. Yes, I'm going right now to the website, the electronic press release uh, kit. Right. right, and then just scroll down a little bit. First, you'll see what's what looks like a media kit, which is the cover of the DVD. Right. And then the second page, you'll see a picture of Travis getting hit by this beam. And it's a little, what, what we call a pitch script in the industry where you're trying to sell a film to a um, a distributor and you have to kind of put basic information on it. Um, legal information, copyright, stuff like that. But there's a little picture of the craft there. Amazing. I'm going to get that up on the uh, chat room now. Okay. Well, the, the Travis uh, documentary is, you know, the the, the um, ultimate work uh, as far as a documentary is concerned. And uh, I would encourage people not to rely on the Hollywood movie for Exactly what happened, but it does uh, a good job of communicating the the emotional meat grinder we went through at the time. Um, 
that's uh, conveyed pretty, pretty, pretty well. But uh, I've had a number of producers come to me about a dramatic recreation, uh, redoing the theatrical movie. But uh, I haven't been persuaded that any of them are capable of doing it justice. But it probably ought to be uh, done just to fix what uh, the, the fictionalizations Hollywood did in the drama. Yeah. Uh, if they could undo it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Travis, what exactly did you think of the film as a whole? Did you like the actor who played you, D.B. Sweeney? Um, well, he doesn't look anything like me, but you know, he doesn't. I brought my oldest boy with me, and people say, "Oh, you brought DB Sweeney with you," and I go, "Oh, wow, <laughs> it's <laughs> uncanny the resemblance between my son and DB Sweeney, who doesn't look anything like me." But uh, it's it's when I show people the picture of the two of them side by side, people just gasp at the at the incredible similarity. And that, uh, I heard today again that somebody had, uh, when who had never met my son, he came to the, my grandson's birthday party today, and they said, "Wow, he looks so much like D.B. Sweeney." Wow! But uh, it's just, uh, and it's just a coincidence because uh, I don't think any of uh, the casting people uh, had ever met my son either. You might have to uh, ask your wife and get a, you know, a little <laughs> blood test there, Mike. I mean, Mike, I trust. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, I think he looks like D.B. Sweeney, and I think Travis looked enough like him to where he was a good pick for that character. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, um, choosing Robert Patrick to play Mike was a good choice. Yeah, Pat, Robert Patrick, that's that's pretty insane that he played uh, Mike here, the, the Terminator, the T-1000. Yeah, the liquid metal man, uh, liquid uh, metal cop. Uh, Yes, the, the well, T one thousand. That character, insane. yeah, he, he he made me feel good, uh, and I've made this comment several times, especially like on Good Morning America. I said, you know, he plays me better than me. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, and, uh, so overall, both of you did like the adaptation. Well, um, when I was handed a copy of the script. Um, I should have uh, felt a little more foreboding from the fact that the part aboard the craft was not in the script. They were saying, oh, we've got some things we're still resolving there. But yeah, they just, they knew that I was not going to be happy with the degree of fictionalization of what happened aboard the craft. But I have, yeah. And the I, I suppose that, uh, you know, people who have real uh, movies made about real life events, uh, are never a hundred percent satisfied because it's a very hard thing to do is, is to um, dramatize real life. Yeah, you won't get any complaints from me about that. That's very true. And Mike and Travis, when you first initially heard that there was going to be a film, what on earth did you guys even think at that point? Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it would be a good thing to put people through what we went through so that they would understand. Uh, not just the reality of it, but the trauma of what we'd experienced. Amazing. And Mike, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, what I really liked about the film was the fact that it was an all-star cast. Uh, you know, you couldn't pick a better group. Of, I mean, they were they were all previously stars uh, unto themselves. I mean, yeah. they, they each had successes uh, before that. You know, uh, uh, Steve Pierce was played by... Uh, what was his name? Uh, 
Henry, what was his name? Travis? Uh, Henry the guy played in, uh, yeah. Uh, he was in uh, that movie, you know. Uh, oh, you're, where, yeah, you're talking yeah. about Greg Hayes. Yeah. No, 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 not the Greg Hayes. Uh, I was talking about well, the guy that the played. Character. Oh, the guy who played him, Henry Thomas, I, I recall. Yes, Henry Thomas. That's right. Right. That's right. the name I was trying to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget names, too. I do, I too. was right there, but I couldn't remember it. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. I always do that. Yeah. And uh, he played that little boy. And uh, that film was just amazing. That was a, a major movie, one of the one of the box offices of all times. Uh, yeah, the movie um, E.T. Yes, yeah, there's and a lot. Uh, you know all those guys, every single one of them, uh, including the sheriff, uh, the investigator, all of them. Uh, James, so I don't, I don't know how Carter, they afforded uh, all that for that movie. Was the, was the sheriff and the skeptics all rolled into one character? Yeah, but they were all dynamic characters who were all already successful in big names. They all have a long list of accomplishments. Sorry, uh, before uh, going into uh, this film, no doubt they were all yeah. pretty, pretty much veterans at this time, and they all did a great job. I thought. I thought the film was rather good. And Jennifer, did you like the film for how it turned out? I'm curious. Do you mean, are we now, I always have to clarify, are we talking about Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, or are we talking about the 1993 film? Correct. (laughs) Which which film? You say correct. Oh, no, no. Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think Fire in the Sky, as I had said before, woke the mainstream up in a way that other films had not, that this was potentially a real story or a true story. But I think it just furthered, because they didn't stick to the facts, it further muddied the water, as many television programs and episodes do. Like even the the newest one that is out there, uh, well, there's a couple out there now, I mean, Unidentified is doing a pretty good job, but uh, the uh, Blue Book Project, right, that's further muttering the water sort of for the American public because they don't read, they don't know the history, and they take the Hollywood version and think it's the real version. So I can't tell you how many people, even mainstream ufologists who are well-known, think Travis was returned naked and think he was just tortured by gray aliens, which isn't true. Like there's, there's a huge, you know, important aspect of Travis's story that many people miss. He met two species on the craft that he was on, right? And and he walked off one craft, walked through a hangar, walked in a medical facility and met other beings that looked human just like him. I mean, it's an amazing story. At the time when he had his story, it was so new to encounters with beings coming out in the UFO material. And these same beings are still being seen 40 years later by abductees. So I think that Fire in the Sky did not do a good service to really what needs to happen in educating the public about the reality that we're not alone and there's more than one species probably interacting and visiting with us. I mean, it was a nice Hollywood piece, but if you begin to separate fact from fiction, as we all have to do in our lives, um, it did not really do 
the service that I intended to do. I mean, not that I'm pushing the other film, the newer film, the documentary, but I think in that part, we did a decent job with the onboard the craft experience because we followed an audio uh, script from an interview I did with Travis. Actually, the audio you hear in the film is the very first regression Travis did with um, blanking on the psychologist's name at the moment. Uh, who, Harder. who did you, Harder? Yes, yes, Jim, Jim Harder, James Harder, James Hart. Oh, yes, right. That was that was an audio recording made. We used the archival audio material wherever we could. We went back to the source and used that original audio of Travis describing what he experienced in that hypnosis. And then we matched visuals to that description. And I think we did a much better job, if I can say, um, at least ex- sticking to the true story of the event. Yes, you did. And that and that uh, hypnosis that Dr. Harder did uh, was really a landmark. It was a major uh, turning point for me because I, up until then, I, I could hardly finish a sentence. You know, I was uh, so traumatized. It was, I was inarticulate. The first time I'd ever actually completed a description of everything that had happened uh, to my brother or the sheriff or anybody. Yeah, I met Travis before he had that hypnosis. I went down there, and uh, even though it had been like a day or more than a day before he had actually been returned, uh, I, I can vouch for the fact that he couldn't put a sentence together. He was so completely disjointed, uh, you know, so completely trauma. I I consider it to be trauma, and uh, that's exactly the way he acted. And so I can see that that hypnosis really helped him. I was just about to ask you if you went through that whole process, Travis, and I got my answer. And I'm also curious, Travis, if even today, if you still have any sort of flashbacks from any of those events that we are talking about now, maybe uh, flashbacks, maybe like daydreams or even maybe uh, dreams in general. Uh, Travis, go ahead. Yeah, um, I thought I was much more recovered than I actually am. In 2014, I had a sighting that uh, was pretty dramatic, but uh, I had thought that I had come to a different understanding of their intent, you know, whether they were dangerous or, you know, frightening. But uh, I was surprised at how frightened I was, um, much more than I thought I would be. Um, In 2014, it was just... A close encounter and uh, right. my son says dad dad should we pull over and take a picture i go no no keep going <laughs> and yes. I, I'm, I'm saying why did i to say that you know that's just crazy i wish i wish i had that picture interesting and travis another funny uh, funny story is back in i think it must have been 2016 you went out to george nori's birthday party out there in joshua tree california yeah. Yeah. You were out there. You were sitting at, at this table with a number of other individuals in ufology. And there's a photograph of all of you guys that was posted on the main website of the contact in the, in the desert website. And I remember looking at this photograph and in the background, you can see me there. It's, it's quite hilarious. And I always mm-hmm. thought that's pretty funny. I always think, man, we have a photograph together, Travis, and you don't even know it. <laughs> okay. From a distance, well, you can I, see me. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. I haven't even seen what you look like, actually. I don't even know what you look like. Mm-hmm. Mike, how dare you? How do you not know what I look like? 
I don't. You know, I've never seen a picture he, of you. He picked me up at the airport and uh, took me back and put me on the plane. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time together. By, by the way, Travis, did you like it out there in, in uh, Joshua Tree? Uh, yeah, I thought that was uh, much more uh, cordial and uh, uh, friendly than later locations. But It's pretty damn hot, right? Yeah, hot and dusty, yeah. but uh, kind of spread out. But uh, Michael, were, Michael Deacon, were you there in 2016 I at was, Joshua Tree at uh, Contact was, in the Desert? I sure was. Okay, well then we you then you saw the film if you came to the screening because I did. Uh, we screened it there, uh, yeah, in yeah. 2016. I saw it. Yeah, good, good. Well, yeah. Now, have I ever met you, Michael? No, we we have never met, uh, Mike. Unfortunately, there's been times that people come up and, and shake my hand and say things and talk to me, you know, and I don't know who they are. So, <laughs> I've met a lot of people that uh, know me and I don't know them. I just don't ever remember meeting you. Yeah, it's a, it happens. I, I recall even running into Stanton Friedman at that time, and I, I ran into him maybe two, three or well, two or three times. And at the very end of the birthday celebration, I saw him outside, and I was just saying bye to him, and he asked me if I was the driver. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, no, not at all. I'm not driving you anywhere. Uh, yeah, he wow. was, well, you know, you know his condition during that time. Yeah. Yeah, he was pretty bad. Poor guy. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of insane that he's gone already, don't you think? Yeah, we, we never want the people we love to, to go. Yeah, we, we sure don't. And I miss him already. Yeah, yeah, he made a wonderful contribution. And uh, it's, you know, we all kind of know that life is finite and we have a limited amount of time. So that's why I said it kind of matters what we do when we're here. That's why it's important we do what we think is uh, most important. And You think uh, it kind of matters? Yeah. I think it totally matters. It totally matters. <laughs> it totally matters. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we have many problems to solve in this world. And I think that if we really began to address this issue uh, in the proper light, um, educationally, academically, politically, religiously, spiritually, you know, financially, it could really change the world's perspective and be a big eye opener and break down a lot of the um, superficial barriers that are there between different uh, ideologies, different countries, different religious backgrounds, and and different long-range focuses for humanity. Um, it's kind of like the environment, right? We have all got to come together on the environment. I think we're already at the at the we have like 11 years or something to turn back or begin to turn back with policies and changes the environment and if we don't we are sunk we we are well, in I've, I've in- never uh, subscribed to the theory that boy the, the thing that would solve this whole UFO mystery the thing that would make it all better is for the government to just admit that it's real i don't agree uh, I think that there's their secrecy um, to a certain extent is justified. Uh, whatever technology we've harvested and recovered, um, uh, we don't want to throw up in the books. Uh, the United States has enemies on this planet, unfortunately, uh, several countries that would love to destroy us if they were confident that we didn't have some technology waiting in the wings that might uh, be better than anything they have. So um, I think it's a good idea to hold off on that at this point. 
Um, well, um, no I, I, didn't, I, I didn't actually say, Travis, not not that to get into an argument with you, but I didn't actually say that we should just announce to the world tomorrow they're real. But I said we have I to didn't, begin to digest I wasn't to implying this. that you did. I'm talking about ufology in general. Yeah, you know, I, I go to conferences all over and people are constantly saying, you know, if the government would just open the books and tell us. You know, yeah, it's, I've never it's, heard that from you, but the, I hear that all the time yeah. out there. That uh, well, they they are trying. I, I think the yeah. problem is that we're not ready. I believe that there's probably something. This is just my opinion, but uh, something akin to the Prime Directive, the Non-Interference Directive. That the reason they're not landing and saying here we are and here's all the technology you'd like to have is because that would not be in our best interest. It would it would be destructive. You know, the history of Earth's uh, uh, civilizations, uh, societies more advanced than others, uh, exploring. Every time they encounter a less advanced technology here on the Earth, it's always destructive to the less uh, developed. And so I think that would probably hold true with um, to a, a multiple multiplicity of of the same effect. Uh, to you know, for aliens to come in and say, "Here we are," and uh, by the way, here's here's a bunch of technology. You know, you know, the brand new box of matches. Now go play. I, I don't think it's a, a good idea. Amazing. Well, I'll tell you something. We, you know, the government. It wouldn't be a good idea to to release everything all at once like that. But they are trickling it out. And that's that, yeah. that's important. People keep missing the fact. Like I was waiting for you to say, you've seen this stuff, especially uh, on Fox. You know, uh, this Tic Tac and, and yeah, other Mike, video and yeah, stuff Mike, like we, that. We were we're going to get into that here on on the second half. All these things we're talking about, we will jump into it as well as Mike's experience on this crap. Mike Travis's uh, his experience on this crap. Uh, but right now, I'm looking at the clock, and we definitely need to take a, a little bit of a break here and of course when we return we'll, we'll jump into that and the travis jennifer and mike are you guys okay and good for a, a little break here yep, yes absolutely how long of a break uh, i'm thinking either five ten minutes okay no problem. is that cool no with problem. you guys yeah it's cool. yeah, it sounds Very good cool. just stay on the line and travis are, are you uh can you do that can you stay on the line or do you need me to call you back um, I, I can uh, stay on the line. Okay, well, we're all going to go on a little break here, and when we return, ladies and gentlemen, we will jump into all these subjects. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Friends, yet again, let's bring them all in here. And I do want to thank all of you for 
hanging out with us this evening. I know we went on a little a break there, but it is needed when you are doing a show like this one. And uh, welcome back, Jennifer, Mike, and Travis. How's it going? Very good. You guys good? Yeah, thanks. You enjoyed that little break there, I hope. I hope everyone enjoyed the break. I always, yeah. always got to enjoy those breaks. I really appreciate them. And I appreciate everyone out there who stayed in here uh, tonight and uh, listened to this incredible segment we have going on here. And before the break, we were talking about the abduction, the actual moment Travis basically came out of consciousness is what I'm trying to get at here. And the Travis, when you came about, what did you see a when you were aboard, I guess you could say, a craft. Well, that's uh, my least favorite memory to visit. <laughs> of course. But um, I didn't uh, regain consciousness very quickly. I didn't just wake up. I was kind of in and out for, for I don't know how long. But uh, I was in a lot of pain, and I couldn't even focus my eyes at first. Um, I could tell there was something lying across my chest, uh, some sort of a device. In the um, in the movie, um, they show um, a sequence where the actor has a membrane over his face, and he's struggling to scream through it, struggling to breathe through it. Well, there was no membrane, but I think... That's the one departure from reality that was an improvement in terms of uh, communicating to the audience the source of my panic. Uh, it's really hard to describe it if there's no dialogue, you know. There was nobody to talk to. <laughs> I'm just screaming uh, mindlessly. And uh, uh, so it, it showed something that... Um, Otherwise, when in the past, when I tried to explain to people the level of fear I was experiencing, they some people would actually say things like, "Oh, I wouldn't be that scared. I'd just stay calm and ask good questions and uh, take advantage of this meeting and uh, and uh, right, you know, maybe maybe even uh, grab a souvenir to take home with me, you know." They don't understand. That's all hindsight. You know, what I was going through was a feeling of being mortally wounded and a feeling of suffocation that generates a, a type of panic that you just can't explain away. Or, or uh, well, I've compared it to waterboarding. Oh, wow. An, an interrogation technique uh, where uh, the uh, subject is led to believe they're going to drown they don't. No one's ever died from it. Uh, it's something that our own guys practice. They rehearse it to, to make themselves more resistant to it. But it still works because uh, you just can't reason away uh, the, the the feeling that uh, suffocation gives. And I was feeling a shortness of breath, uh, uh, an inability to get enough oxygen that um, just added to the feeling of panic. It also interfered with my ability to to wake up, to regain consciousness. I could see there was a light above me, but the ceiling was closer than where it ought to be. So I figured I was on some raised surface. 
turns out that was only part of it. It was just a very small room with some low ceilings, but um, there was a light fixture overhead. wasn't particularly bright. It was not all that bright at all, but it hurt to look at it. Pain in my eyes, um, probably due to uh, the injury I just suffered. And uh, I think possibly um, um, a certain amount of it had been that I had been um, had some sort of repairs done uh, that wasn't complete. Um, when I could finally focus my eyes, I could see that this wasn't or, or these weren't doctors standing over me. That these were these creatures, and that sudden realization was such a shock, such a shot of adrenaline that you know there's it, there's just nothing to compare it to. But uh, it gave me a boost of strength. Even though I was in a very weakened condition, I, I flailed out. My arm made contact with one of them. Uh, it was much softer and lighter than I expected. Yeah, in the movie, you are seen as like pushing or striking one of these beans, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and it fell back into the other one. I, I rolled away in the other direction. The device that... They had a line across my chest, fell off, but I was, you know, totally, my gaze was riveted on them and what they were doing. I, you know, immediately realized that, no, I hadn't been injured and taken to a hospital, that I was, you know, on board this craft, and I felt trapped. And it was so claustrophobic because uh, it was so small in there, and so... um um, difficult to breathe, dimly lit. The whole thing was very, uh, it, it gave me a feeling of being trapped. And at the same time, the desperation from needing more air than I was getting. But the three of them stared at me in a way that gave me a really weird sort of a squirmy feeling in my head. And I think, in hindsight, that what they they were probably attempting to regain some sort of control over me, mind control. No, no. To uh, to sedate me, to to you know get me calmed down, and to where they could get me back on the table and complete what they were doing. Which, contrary to a lot of news reports, who who actually took the liberty of calling it medical experiments. Uh, I never said that myself. Um, I think that um, probably they were simply trying to uh, revive me. That um, this encounter, that when I stood up, I closed the distance, kind of like a spark gap, you know? You just get close enough, and all of a sudden the energy jumps, and, and it was devastating and very destructive. And since the nearest hospital was... Um, an hour away in either direction, and uh, the um, none of the crew knew CPR, as far as I knew. But uh, um, uh, probably the the thing that made it necessary to take me aboard, and so it, you wouldn't really classify it as an abduction, you know. Yeah, I was taken, but for my own good. It's it's kind of like uh, trying to convince a kid that. Uh, the dentist isn't a white-coated monster out to make him feel pain, you know, to tell him, look, this is all for your own good. You know, he doesn't want to hurt you. It's all going to be okay. 
And none of that makes any sense to the kid. He's convinced that they, this uh, dentist is a, a monster. <laughs> so uh, kind of like that, um, I was determined to fight because I felt like I was defending myself, you know, that I was uh, at their mercy. And I, all I wanted was to escape. And at this point, what was your level of pain as you laid there and looked up at that bright light and seen these three figures standing there? Well, it was it was very, very painful, you know, but, you know, I, I'm used to dealing with discomfort and pain, you know, it's a, it's a tough job and, you know, training is tough. Uh, you just learn to endure and, and find ways to cope with it, you know, but uh, um, I... They, they, I was getting ready to attack them because uh, they were between me and the door. But um, I don't know whether they figured out that's what I was about to do or just uh, figured that this uh, mind control thing just was not working. But anyway, they all turned and left very quickly. You can see that without mind control, the, the physical advantage, even in my weakened condition, would have been really enormous over them. Just uh, even a slight blow could um, seriously injure them, and probably um, when they meant no harm. Interesting. And, of course, when you are finally coming uh, to being and you are looking around the room, what what else did you see there? Well, there were some instruments. I grabbed one of them. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it was a, a rod-like instrument that I was just using as a weapon flailing through the air, making striking motions before they got close enough to actually hit, but to keep them away from me. And uh, after I was returned, um, I underwent uh, an EEG, brainwave scan, which showed some residual effects of my injury um, that uh, didn't show up in subsequent uh, EEGs, brainwave scans. And this was... Um, this was done at Burroughs Neurological, which is a world-famous brain trauma center. Um, it's where Muhammad Ali went when he was here with his neurological problems. He even uh, donated a wing to the hospital there. But uh, Dr. Kandel did not um, tell the technician who I was or what had happened to me, which made the unusual tracings more significant in that... Uh, he had no expectations, was just told to look for signs of, you know, injury or whatever, you know. And uh, so um, I was not functioning well at that point. And I think luckily for me that they were eventually able to get me back under sedation and complete the repairs. But meanwhile, I was looking for a way out of the craft, trying to open a door any way I could pressing buttons, pushing levers, whatever, you know, try to open what I thought were doors, leading to the outside, but but uh, piecing together the layout later, I could see that those doors wouldn't have led to the outside anyway. And on top of that, um, at that point, the craft was probably not in the clearing anymore. But um, I was assuming that it was, that all I had to do was open a door and drop to the ground. Right. And at this point, at any, well, at any point, did you think you were even, I guess, 
in orbit around the Earth, or did you think you were somewhere even further? Well, that's definitely possible. You know, I was thinking uh, this could be, you know, opening the door might be a bad mistake. If there's, <laughs> right. there's, there's a vacuum outside, you know, but I could see points of light. If this was an actual view of where it was, that would definitely not be a good idea. But I think the entrance of this human-looking individual uh, was probably deliberate um, with the idea that my fear was going to cause me to resist any attempts to get me back on the table, period. You know, So uh, seeing something that looked human to me made me cooperate. Oh, so you did see someone that looked like us. Yeah. Yeah, I assumed it was a, a rescue. They're coming to save me from these monsters. Uh, but uh, uh, some people say, well, could it have been robots? Or could it have been uh, an illusion? I doubt if it was a, like a, men, you know, a mind control type of illusion, because I, I think that kind of control wasn't working at that point, that there was too much neurological disturbance from my injury. But um, for whatever reason, they knew I wasn't going to cooperate with anything that didn't look like uh, someone there to rescue me. So this man took me out of the craft. And uh, at this point, I don't know if it's there the whole time or if it's just recently been there or what, but at this point, uh, it was parked inside of this large enclosure. I don't know whether it was um, an actual airplane hangar or the inside of a larger craft, but I was um, not spending a whole lot of time uh, observing my surroundings. I was more concerned with where is this guy taking me, you know, and he seemed to be in quite a bit of a hurry and that in hindsight, was probably due to my injury. And um, he took me down the hallway to a room where there were some other people, and, except they weren't wearing a helmet. He was—he had a helmet on, and it was, it was easier to breathe outside of that craft. So I don't know. It could have been due to that I was kind of recovering, shaking off the effects of my injury, or it could be that the atmosphere inside of that craft was more suited for the so-called grays. Understood. They didn't have that term back uh, back in uh, 1975. They didn't call these beings grays. But right. Anyway, the atmosphere was more suited for them, perhaps, and... Uh, or it could be that I had some sort of actual trauma to my lungs or or a neurological problem that made breathing hard. But he left me with these uh, other humans. They uh, forced me down. I started to resist because they weren't answering. I, I needed to have some answers, right? some reassurance. And uh, so they forced me onto the table and put a mask over my face looked just like a gas mask you know like uh, an earth medical device and um, I lost consciousness and that was all I uh, recalled until I woke up in time to see the craft leaving understood and Jennifer were you going to jump in here well I I was I was just going to point out that this is 
one of these aspects Travis didn't mention, but I think is really profound and important. As he was walking across this hangar, like he, he walked out of this UFO craft he saw in the forest. He turned around and looked at it and saw it, and it was a disc, right? And they walked down a ramp and then across what he best describes as like a tarmac in some sort of what's like an aircraft hangar, but we don't know really what they're in. But there are other craft there that he can see. And they're not the disc-shaped craft he walked off of. They're reflective, large, tic-tac-shaped craft, right? Or like egg-shaped craft. More rounded, more rounded, not not, not so sharp-edged. Now, we're only hearing about Tic Tacs now in the news, sort of, right, in 2015. He had an experience in 2000, I mean, in uh, 1975. Right. So 40 years before, 45 years almost before we hear about Tic Tacs, Travis is talking about them. And uh, I was also going to mention, I sent you a link where there's actually a short little video description. It's what we use. It's the reenactment we did for the Travis film. So if somebody wants to watch this, they can. you can post the link I sent you. It's a little interview I did with him on a local television show, and they opened with this reenactment. I gave them access to the footage, and they decided to use it. So it's about maybe a three-minute clip, and you hear Travis's voice describing this whole thing he just described, and you can see it in a videographic description with, you know, literally CGI and artist renditions of these beings and these craft and this environment that he's describing. So I'll let Travis go back to waking up on the side of the street. Ah, Yes. Don't worry. I will definitely post that up on Twitter and multiple websites for, for everyone out there. Go ahead, Travis. Well, when I woke up, um, I, I could feel the cold air and I could tell I hadn't been in the cold too long. Um, I could feel the cold, you know, you know, coming up my pant leg and, and into my clothes. But there was a light above me, and I looked to see where the light was coming from. But it went off before I could look in that direction fully. But then there was a very shiny uh, disc, rounded disc style hovering there just for an instant before it shot up into the sky. Um, it sort of stirred the air. You know, around me and around the tree there. Um, that tree's still there. It hasn't died or anything yet. But uh, um, I uh, recognized this piece of highway and the, the lights of the town down below. I ran down into the town. And the first building, it was all lit up and steam coming out of the chimney or smoke or something. And I pounded on the door and, and yelled. Nobody came. It might be that uh, they were terrified of somebody screaming and pounding on the door in the middle of the night, or maybe nobody heard me, but uh, nevertheless, I gave up on that and ran on down across the second bridge and found the the phone booth that I called my family from. But, um, you know, you get all kinds of stories, you know. There was the the debunker claimed I was never in that phone booth. There was a friend who said, you know, that, you know, he believed me and everything, but he said the first thing I did when I got to the phone booth was call him because he lived in Heber. And then when um, I wasn't home, then, then I called my family, but that's not true. 
because of my hysteria and the screaming in my voice and the operator hearing all that, she listened in on the phone call and reported it to the sheriff. There was only one call, but the important point is that there was a call. The debunker was saying that I was never in the phone booth. I was off somewhere else in and, and his theory, but uh, I was definitely uh, making a phone call from that phone booth to the point where the sheriff um, sent officers over there to uh, uh, dust for prints or whatever that night. But it was the middle of the night, so they didn't get there as quickly as my family did. They apparently were st still up when I called. And of course, at that point, they must have just been completely terrified and shocked that they actually are seeing you right in front of them now. Yeah, yeah, my family actually started to hang up on me. They thought I was uh, a prankster. They, uh, People can be so cruel. During this period of time, there had been a number of prank calls uh, that people thought uh, would amuse themselves. But I convinced them it was me. He didn't hang up on me and said, I'll get your brother and come and get you. And Mike, at what point did you learn about Travis finally making that return? Well, he was returned uh, uh, late last that night. Uh, I can't remember what time of day it was or what time of night it was, but uh, I heard about it uh, the next evening, and I didn't get to go down there until the following day. But uh, in the movie, they have Travis calling me. Uh, that's not the brother-in-law he was calling. Tra I was not Travis's brother-in-law yet. <laughs> I was a year and a half or so later, but at the time well, he that's called. Hollywood. His... I'm going to shorten up the time span here. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was uh, just, uh, he called his other brother-in-law, his actual brother-in-law at the time. Uh, I guess, uh, you can tell the name if you want. I almost said his name, but uh, yeah. My sister's husband. Yes. And, uh, so I went down after that to Phoenix, and that's uh, where, where it takes off when I talked about it before, when I first met him. But one uh, well-meaning person uh, also was saying, yeah, yeah, I believe Travis, you know, but uh, um, I'm a close friend of the family, and I was, I was at that homecoming party. Well, in the movie, there is a homecoming party, but ah, yes. that was Hollywood fiction. didn't mm -hmm. exist, and so he couldn't have been yeah. at the party. And there was all kinds of people, whether they were for or against, who would, you know, kind of make up stories to amplify their connection to the story or to the family mm -hmm. yeah. um, when it wasn't true. Yeah, yeah we've, we've Go got ahead, a lot Mike. of stories about that, don't we? <laughs> people yeah. pretending to be somebody who knows. That's wild. But that that scene in the movie that I'm thinking about right now is when you guys are, it's, it's a big family gathering sort of thing. And mm -hmm. Travis seems to have some sort of episode. He goes down, hits the floor and his back hits the, hits mm -hmm. like the kitchen table and syrup goes into his mouth. I thought, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. That right. entire yeah, scene didn't happen. Came, but not in front of the whole family. Yeah. I figured that I'm pretty sure that was obviously embellished by Hollywood for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And in the movie played down a lot of things that were very important. And then it fictionalized other things that uh, it just did for effect. Vic something says in the chat room. So Travis, Travis's body was still laying in the grass when Mike drove the truck out of the woods. And that would be yes. Yeah. 
Well, that was one one of the cases where the debunker was having it both ways. He was saying that the ground was rocky and flying 10 or 15 feet should have bruised me. And my uh, medical exam showed no bruises. But he was saying that the ground was covered with a thick carpet of pine needles that should have burst into flames because of the beam. So he's trying to have it both ways. It was rocky and should have bruised me. And it was a thick carpet of pine needles that should have uh, Mm -hmm. burst into fire. Uh, and and also, if I can interject here, uh, this this question from the, the chat room, um, keep in mind, they were in the middle of the Sitgraves National Forest. So Mike couldn't drive out of the forest because it's several million acres. I mean, it, it's a good, I think it's a 40 minute drive down to the nearest town of Heber. So you're, it's 40 minutes before you're really out of the forest. What he did is he just drove up this logging road to what's called the rim road or the top of the ridge and then he stopped the truck and turned around and decided he had to go back and get Travis so Mm. he hadn't really left the forest he'd left the vicinity he drove about I don't know Yeah, quarter of a mile away. So maybe that better answers. I always try to interject that, you know, because occasionally people have commented on the crew driving off like that uh, as being something less than courageous. And I disagree heartily. Uh, Mike did the smartest thing right there. Uh, the crew were screaming at him, get the son of a bitch moving, let's go, let's go, you know. Uh, and it, it would make no sense to try to rescue somebody that they, you know, knew in their gut was, was presume, already dead. Presume is dead. Right. Right. But I yeah. give them a lot of credit for turning around and coming back. I mean, that's going to make you feel good. The crew were trying to tell Mike, "No, no, let's not go back. Let's just go to town." Yeah, Travis, but that he, that he insisted that Travis, uh, that sort of has to make you feel good that they came back. Yeah, it does. Right. And, uh, they were they were trying to see if they could help. You know. They they also saw the craft leave. I don't know if that was mentioned so far in this yeah, radio that, show. Yeah, that helped. Not so, so far. Yeah. yeah. Right. That so did as, happen. As they were returning, they, they had kind of driven uphill to the rim road, right? And when they mm-hmm. turned the truck around and were then coming back to the site, they were actually heading downhill because this was in a valley, the Turkey Springs. Yeah. Well, the road was on the side of the hill. But yes, and I have to. They add. knew they weren't going to encounter the craft. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it was gone. And, you know, uh, we, we, Kenny, I could tell Kenny what it was. That, a couple know, of guys saw that. It was just it was a streak return, through the air. But just what horrors uh, my body was going to be in. Yeah, at that at that point, all sorts of things must have been going through your head. And I'm curious about what life was like for both of you guys after all this was said and done. Let's say maybe a month or two after the whole incident had taken place. I'm sure things were still pretty much um, on shaky grounds uh, for for everyone, right? Right, right. I was preoccupied with the horror of what I had experienced, the shock. Uh, but then gradually this constant uh, harassment from the media and right, from yeah. the public uh, started to come through to me just how serious that was. It was horrible. But, you know, uh, John describes walking down the street and having people yell out, murderer! Oh, no. Well, that was before he was returned. A month later, uh, Travis was still traumatized, but uh, I started feeling the harangue of Philip Class. 
And that lasted 40 years. <laughs> and that lasted yes. for a while, right? Almost 40 years. He, he died in, uh, uh, what was it, uh, uh, 2003? Right, right. Yeah. But so. uh, way up until then, and he's not the only one. I mean, there was others, several others. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, after all these years, boys, the story has lived on, and it will continue to long after we are all gone. There's been a lot of praise, and of course, there's been plenty of skeptics out there. And just a few weeks ago, I spoke to Dr. Michael Shermer, who both of you are quite familiar with. In fact, oh yes, in fact, I brought up the case and mentioned Travis, and I have audio of what he said. And Travis, would you be interested in hearing that? Well, yeah. Okay, Travis. And um, Jennifer, I assume you haven't heard this. And Mike? I have not. Okay. I've I'm, heard it. Mike has heard it. I did play it for him. And here it goes. It's about, how long is this clip? It's only about a minute and 11 seconds. So I'm just going to play the whole thing. You ready, Travis? Yeah. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yep. All right. I'll let it rip. Here we go have interviewed a man by the name of Mike Rogers multiple times. And he, of course, was the driver and witness to the Travis Walton abduction. And they also made the film A Fire in the Sky based on this sort of event. I'm sure you've seen the film or heard of it yeah, yeah, a, a number yeah. of times. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I met Travis Walton. He came to my office actually one day for a filming for a TV show. Oh, interesting. And I, yeah. And I was on another set with him where it was a, one of these reality shows on on the lie detector. Mm. So one of the episodes was they gave him a lie detector uh, and he volunteered to do it. He thought he'd pass. And at the end of the show, he ended up failing. Wow. Uh, yeah. I'm going to have to. I think, I think he made it up. I think he, this is what we think the UFO people think. I mean, UFO skeptics think he, you know, he was late to finish his job and he just concocted the story. And it was probably not meant to be a big public thing. It's probably just, you know, just to get out of this job problem he was having. And, but then it, it became, took off and then he had to live, live the lie. I mean, I hate to call him a liar. I don't know for sure, but that's what I think. He asked me my opinion. I think he made it up. And that was the clip, Travis. Yeah, well, okay. Um, Go ahead, Travis. He's the liar. Yeah. Because he knows damn good and well that that show was a fraud. Right. It's important to uh, know the, that show, the uh, know that holograph show, never passed a single guest. Everyone failed. That was the examiner's job. And he was using methods that are totally against anything proper with uh, polygraphy. And, and Michael Shermer knows this. He knows that the show was under attack from a group of polygraph examiners, Global Polygraph from New York, attacking the show, saying that they could never have gotten any results better than flipping a coin with the methods that they were using. Mm -hmm. Commenting on the show was also the author of the premier textbook on polygraph, Dr. David Raskin, saying that the show was a fraud and uh, f faulty methods. Um, I there, uh, this space, has been explained in detail to Michael Shermer, and um, I told him that I wouldn't talk about all the times that he had uh, been in deep trouble for having uh, uh, intoxicated and drugged women in order to have sex with them. Now, this was already made public by other people uh, in connection with the uh, skeptics organization that he's a part of. But 
somebody that would uh, drug women in order to have sex with them is not my idea of an honest person. This guy's a creep. Uh, I offered him the opportunity. Look, say anything you want about me in a, of a skeptical nature. But if you're going to harp on that fraudulent show when you know I've already presented the evidence to you, if you're going to keep up with that, then we're going to talk about your uh, date rape. Uh, alleged date rape. Charges. Yes, allegedly. I, I don't want you to get in trouble now. Well, I'm I'm not the one alleging it. I'm I'm reading what was made public My already. Goodness, we we might have a lawsuit on our hands here. But yes, well, allegedly. No, yes. no, the oh, no. already made it public. Oh, I'm just my. reporting that they made it public. Yes. Um, I'll also tell you Go ahead, that um, for the documentary that I made, I spoke with the head of the National Polygraph Association. His name is Nate Gordon at the time when um, – well, he he wasn't exactly the head of it during the time when I filmed him, but he had just stepped down from the post about a year before, and he was in Philadelphia. So, you know, this Professional Polygraph Association is, is actually international, but uh, certainly very strong nationally. And he would have gladly commented on this television show and told you the nature of how they set their pieces up. But I figured that I couldn't get access to the footage without right. paying a huge amount of money to to own it. And I felt maybe I should address it uh, with something David Jacobs said, oh, you got to address this, you know, this fake polygraph that they did you because people are going to comment on it. It's going to come back and bite you in the butt. And honestly, it was just too expensive to address uh, be, to really buy the archived film footage because they charge you like $250,000 for like, you know, a minute and well, a half of this the, footage. The, the polygraph examiner was a crook and uh, totally discredited. And like I said, he never passed anybody. That was his job. I mean, they're 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 baiting people in there with a half a million dollar payoff. I was going to say, yeah, well, he doesn't exactly explain everything, uh, but I was just going to quickly add, so you do know what, what TV show he's talking about, correct? Yeah. Well, what was the name of the TV show? Because I don't even know. I, I never heard that. Um, it wasn't aired here, was it, Travis? Or was States, it? It was like had it one was a short-lived show Europe? because uh, oh, okay. they were being sued six ways from Sunday. Oh, my. My goodness. But yes, it is a little unusual that Dr. Michael Shermer kind of 
straight, straight out just said that about you. I was a little bit shocked. That's why I was kind of laughing there. I couldn't believe well, that. Well, that's just... the reason he deserves to be outed about those charges that others oh leveled against him concerning date rape, drugs and alcohol and whatever. Uh, I guess it's a kind of a bad habit uh, that he had there for a while. But uh, um, I don't think uh, that it's fair at all for him to be using stuff that he knows is not valid. Mm. To try you know to that uh, Shermer has agreed uh, that's, to that's come that's on my show with, with these debunkers, these skeptics. They they use stuff that if you had the complete story, you know how stupid they look and how dishonest they look to say, well, uh, it was all a drug hallucination. Well, they leave conveniently leave out the fact that I uh, had blood and urine samples put through the Maricopa County Medical Examiner's drug screen showed no trace of any drug. But you see, I have to go through this law enforcement drug test yeah. mm-hmm. to prove something that was stupid on the face of it to start with. Seven people do not have the, the same hallucination. Well, there there is something called like a, a collective apparition or a mass hallucination. But in this case, I, I, well, I could pretty I've much rule it out. one where you go into every single detail and yeah, that's, uh, yeah. everything's the, the... You got me there. The, yeah. Hallucinations are always rather vague. True. But that's just what the skeptics, the skeptics would say. And I am an open-minded skeptic by nature. And so this is also another reason why I've always been interested in this case, because it's always been one that I couldn't really poke too many holes through, to be completely honest with all of you. Mm, no. And Michael Shermer, by the way, even though I listened to this uh, program that you had with him here. He's going to listen to this. Half ago. He's going to listen yeah. to this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have since uh, called him, uh, text him, and he uh, said that he would come on my show, my new show. Excellent. If I if I would not talk about the Phoenix Lights or Travis Walton. Oh, oh okay. Well, then <laughs> he's not going to be on then. Obviously, so he's said that. <laughs> yeah, I've since uh, texted him back, okay. uh, emailed him back, and uh, tried to talk to him since and turned telling me, Okay, uh, I will not talk about Travis Walton, but my whole purpose for being you being on that show is yeah, to talk he, about the Phoenix Lights. He was being he was kind of being a dick right right there. I could I could say that to you right now, honestly. He won't get too mm-hmm. mad at me for saying that, but that's what he was he was being a dick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he he debunks a lot of things. You know, uh, he just likes. I mean, he's lit. People understand he is a skeptic. He debunks afterlife, you know, uh, life after life experiences as well. And um, he's um, he's he's found his niche. And people who know him know that's what his approach is. He's so. a paid skeptic. I mean, I like the guy, but I do know that he does have his own confirmation bias, as we all tend to do and, and tend to have. Well, sure. I think it's possible to be skeptical and analyze claims right, in right. an objective way, but he's not objective. I mean, he just doesn't even point to any facts. Uh, he just says, well, he made it up. He made it up. Well, yeah. Do you, you remember what Stan you know? used to say? There's there's regular tactics that are employed. And when you see these tactics, it defines the person who's, you know, who's who's spouting them out. They don't do any research. You know, it's all by proclamation. Right. Can you remember all of them, Travis? Trying to well, the you know, uh, there was Don't a whole slew of them that Philip Glass made that were proven to be um, fraudulent. He was actually fraudulent in in claiming that these 
the, the things that had uh, occurred that had not occurred. But, you know, he was just throwing everything at it, you know, all of the above, you know. I'm going to play the clip one more time for those who are just joining in right now, just to cement this in the minds of those who are just joining in. Uh, I'm sure we can all agree to hear this one more time. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear this one more time. Have interviewed a man by the name of Mike Rogers multiple times, and he, of course, was the driver and witness to the Travis Walton abduction, and they also made the film A Fire in the Sky based on this sort of event. I'm sure you've seen the film or heard of it a a number of times, yes. Yeah, I've I've met Travis Walton. He came to my office, actually, one day for filming for a TV show. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I was on another set with him where it was one of these reality shows on on the lie detector. Mm. So one of the episodes was they gave him a lie detector. Uh, and he volunteered to do it. He thought he'd pass. And at the end of the show, he ended up failing. Wow. Uh, yeah. I'm going to have to. I think, I think he made it up. I think he, this is what we think the UFO people think. I mean, UFO skeptics think he, you know, he was late to finish his job and he just concocted the story. And it was probably not meant to be a big public thing. It was probably just, you know, just. I had a pause it right there. He says you made it up because of the job, because you were late. I'm mm-hmm. not sure where he gets that from, Travis. Well, it wasn't even Travis. Philip Glass was uh, saying that, well, Mike said that we were behind on the contract, but that's no big deal. And, you know, that happens quite regularly. Probably most of the contracts we worked on weren't according to schedule, but that's no big deal. We just get in a contract extension. What was that, Jennifer? They never give you enough time. That's the problem. They always cut. They give you just barely enough time if everything goes right. And I actually defaulted on two contracts before that. Uh, so they made a big deal of the time schedule, and, and that's not the way it goes in those jobs. It's not like that at all. Yeah, if you don't finish the job, you don't get paid. You exactly. don't get out of the contract, or you don't get your money and not have to But see, the, the dishonest thing about what Michael Shermer was doing is knowing that I had passed multiple polygraph tests with good, solid examiners, and then the show that he knows has been discredited by the top experts in the field, and he doesn't even mention that. He's he's being deceptive. He is lying. He's so trying to act like, well, anything that casts any doubt on it, those those are good tests. Any ta- uh, test that you pass, you know, the top examiners in the world, you know, the the, the not, nothing's perfect, but, you know, uh, you know Five what this reminds me I passed from law enforcement interrogators, and he knows that I've passed those tests, and he doesn't mention that. He mentions a test that he knows was thoroughly discredited by every polygraph examiner in the business. I'm talking about the whole group of global polygraph people, uh, uh, kind of a giant union of them, were uh, filing uh charges and attacking them in the in the media before I was ever on the show and the author of the premier textbook on polygraph totally dismissing that as incapable of giving legitimate uh, I I could go into a lot more details about you know what is proper procedure and what how they violated that it was just totally ridiculous how everything they did was designed to make it not come out um, truthful. Amazing. Go ahead, Jennifer. You were saying something there. Well, 
we cover a section of this in the film, too, where we really address Phil Class. And Phil tried to maneuver and pull a very similar tactic. He, in fact, it was Mike's idea, I think, that the boys would all uh, retake a polygraph test because Philip was saying it wasn't a legitimate test that they took. Yeah, on the we first, challenged first him. We challenged him. Okay, you pay for it if we pass. We pay for it if we don't. If you're so confident that we're not going to pass polygraph test then then accept the challenge you got nothing so the, to lose the, the boys all yeah, the boys all got together out. made a, sent a letter off to Philip class they all signed it and they said we'll take another test but it has to be a, a certified polygraph examiner that you will agree on and we agree on because you can't set us up with a fake one like this television show did you know um it has to be a legitimate accepted polygraph examiner and we'll all take the test and Philip finally backed out of it because he couldn't really meet the challenge and he knew it and he knew he would fail. So he never accepted the challenge. All right. I'm, I'm going right. to hit the rest of this uh, clip here. Let's play the audio. Uh, yeah. I'm going to have to. I think, I think he made it up. I think he, this is what we think the UFO people think. I mean, UFO skeptics think he, you know, he was late to finish his job and he just concocted the story. And it was probably not meant to be a big public thing. It's probably just, you know, just to get out of this job problem he was having. And, but then it, it became, took off and then he had to live, live the lie. I mean, you to call him a liar. I don't know for sure, but that's what I think. He asked me my opinion. I think he made it up. Amazing. Live the lie, Travis. Yeah, wonderful guy. Yeah, wow. He's the one who's living a lie. Amazing. You know, right. being a skeptic it's, it's very like often he's had to is the living truth. a lie because they have to cover up positive evidence. If you want to discredit something, you stack the evidence to the negative. He just gathers everything and selectively covers up the things that uh, would... <clears throat> Would pass yeah, in any court of law. You know, I think in the a only... court of law, Go ahead. that TV show was bunk. In a court of law, the test that we took from law enforcement polygraph examiners, those are the true professionals. And uh, yes. that's what would hold up in, in court. And But these people aren't scientific, they're not rational, and they're not fair. By the he way, set out to, and just say, yes. I think he made it up. On the basis of what? You know, he points to nothing except a fraudulent TV show. So that makes me point to these charges that these women brought against him for um, uh, date rape. Amazing. You know, the only way I, I feel like we could only settle this is, is, of course, if I bring in Dr. Michael Shermer and have you here, Travis, so you can both yeah, finally I'll talk get to the, each other. The, the actual publication and quotations from the women, if he cares to hear them, you know, I told him, Talk, talk all the skeptical crap you want, but don't be promoting that false uh, polygraph show because you know damn good and well that's a fraud. And yet he come back and did it again in your face, Travis. Well, okay, let's talk about your date rape. Come on on the show, uh, Mr. Shermer. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think this is the only way we are going to be able to settle this sort of uh, indifferences we have here and uh, put our words to use here. And hopefully we could talk through these things, maybe you can convince him that you aren't making this story up, that you are telling the truth wholeheartedly, you and Mike here, and this is something that you both saw. It wasn't something made up. You both experienced this, and Travis's pain is real. Nothing is ever going to convince Michael Shermer of anything. 
I was going to say the same thing. It depends on who, you know, whose payroll is he on? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of evidence that most likely Philip Class was on someone's payroll uh, for years uh, with the intent to debunk this. Um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the uh, Philadelphia uh, uh, Philosophical Society with Stanton Friedman and Kathy Martin looking at Phil Class's files there. And the letters that went back and forth between him and um, uh, the head of the astronomy department at uh, Harvard, uh, Donald Menzel and uh, Mr. Condon and, um, you know, other people involved, uh, well-known involved in uh, debunking UFO stories or covering them up. Uh, there was intimate conversations that went back and forth and vacations that they spent with each other. Um, and, you know, of course, Philip I don't, I don't think that using the term debunk so, is even fair because they're not removing bunk at all. They're, they're spewing bunk in order to, just, to, to discredit. Right, right. Very, so, very interesting. Yes, I... If, you, if you're going to spend your time trying to discredit a debunker, there's far more, uh, <laughs> what's the right word, intelligent things you could do with your time. I, I don't mean that in any way to be a discredit to you, Michael uh, Deacon, but um, I think you have to look at the bigger picture. I've heard worse. And, don't worry. Well, I have a copy <laughs> of, through the Freedom of Information Act, of the FBI file on Philip Cloud, and they thought he was irrational and um, um, to, they were highly critical of him in a variety of ways that he was basically dishonest. They had, were investigating him for having released, uh, um, um, what do you call it? Um, he, he'd had, um, releasing, uh, material that was not supposed to be released. Uh, you know, uh, that's, um, I see classified material, uh, classified material. Thank you. Classified's the word. Dang it. Yeah. He, uh, he was releasing classified information in connection with his job as editor of aviation week and space technology. And in the end, this memo that's in the file is basically the director of the FBI turning the investigation and the evidence over to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. This is a, a, an actual memo signed by J. Edgar Hoover to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency at a time when it was so secret that they didn't use the name of the director on an internal memo. It's just J. Edgar Hoover to Director, Central Intelligence Agency, basically turning their uh, exam, uh, their research over to the CIA. We'll we'll maintain these files. We can we we can hold it over his head, and basically that's what turned him into a CIA asset, and that's where the ten thousand dollar bribe came from that Philip Plass offered Steve Pierce ten thousand dollar bribe. Now these uh, Michael Shermer types are happy to use. Philip Class type crap that he spewed out there. It's been totally discredited, and he's been discredited as a person. The FBI had investigated him a number of times. Right. And by the way, Travis, do you think you could take Dr. Michael Shermer in a fight? Just a side <laughs> I note. I certainly could. You think you could take him? <laughs> yeah. I, sure. I think you might. I think you probably can. I can hardly walk anymore, and I can kick his ass. <laughs> you can take him out, Mike. <laughs> Amazing. No, no, I, I you know, I, uh, I, I'm, uh, uh, 
My first four amateur bouts were were won by knockout. Oh, Michael, better be careful. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, he better. I not only uh, not only called a knockout; they were knocked off of their feet. Oh, damn. Oh yes, and of course so, this this brings me to certain. But I, I, oh, I'm not threatening him. I know. I'm I know. Challenging him to five. He wants to get onto a debate and discuss date rape and and fake polygraph tests and the evidence that he's covered up. Fine. Get out there. Let's get with it. I was just trying to. Well, I, uh, I'll ask you straight out. <laughs> why are you hiding the positive polygraph test? Right. With legitimate examiners and hyping one that was totally discredited by every single examiner to the point where the show was canceled. It was so bad. When I asked you about the fight, I was just trying to get you to pop a little bit there, Travis. Right. I get oh, your Michael laugh here and I are, are trying very hard to get Michael Shermer on. I have challenged him a number of times, and Michael here knows uh, the result. And uh, and recently, he, uh, in spite of my saying, he would, you know, come on my show, come on Michael's show, come on whatever. And, uh, you know, I challenged him to go on KGRA with me. And There's uh, no Michael excuse a, to throw out I, the fake holograph and, and bury and, and hide the good stuff. Amazing. There's no excuse for that except to deceive the public and lie about me to discredit me in a negative way. I am not bringing out anything false when I talk about these women who come forward and challenged him. It, this was during uh, um, meetings that they had with their uh, skeptics association, I guess. But um, I, I'll, I'll be happy to refresh everybody's memory about that if he wants to keep talking about a fake polygraph test right. and, and try to cover up a legitimate test that the examiner stands by to this day. I throw a bottle right now. I'm sorry if anyone heard that. I got angry. <laughs> I got fired well, up, not angry. Honestly, if you want my opinion, Go you ahead, haven't Jennifer. asked for it, but I'm going to throw opinion. it right in here. Do it. I think there's so much important information to digest about Travis's story and about the UFO topic in general. Right. That to um, spend your time, uh, you know, trying to debunk a debunker, it's um, it's to me, it's kind of like just a wasted you think sort it's of energy. Counterproductive. It, they're not even worth it. <laughs> and there's so many well, much more. I can guarantee you, he's to not going to want to come on and, and uh, on an even footing and 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 uh, discuss these matters openly. Well, well you'll be surprised. You know, I think if you we might. can talk about fake polygraph shows and and use that as evidence, we can certainly talk about uh, the charges of date rape. I uh, think we could convince him to come in here. I, I think uh, you know I've talked. Between, enough. Yeah. I think between I you and here. Michael, I think we can. I think I could drag him in here. Yeah. Well, good luck, but I'll be happy to do so if <laughs> he, if he'll answer questions. Not, I'll not let him know. Weasel around. Not we. Yeah. Oh, did we lose you? I I don't know what happened to him, but you know, Michael, uh, I, I think we got a plan here. We have a plan we haven't even talked about yet. Uh oh, it's a call failed between you and me. It says call <laughs> failed disconnected. Yeah, oh. it, it probably dropped off. Maybe he can. Um, or maybe he just bumped his phone by mistake. I think he either bumped his phone or the call just dropped completely, but we we could definitely give him a call back. Yeah, yeah. I guess you would have to do that, right? Yes, let's let's give him a little ring here. He was so fired do up. The, do you have the number saved? Yeah, the yes. I was going to remember give, what we were going to uh -huh. do with uh, Dr. Kate. Remember that plan? Uh, yeah, I do. 
Well, we could do the same thing with Michael Shermer. Well, that's true, but I think he's more than willing to come on. Maybe he is on yours. He doesn't want to come on mine if we talk about anything important. Well, he said he, he'd yeah. be happy to come on my show as long as we don't discuss certain things. <laughs> and then we we lost him. Yeah. We did lose him, but we are running out of time. That's a, another thing that I was going to mention. We are we, we only have about 25 minutes left here on the program, and I was going to ask uh, Travis and both of you if you've been following the, the latest news in ufology, of course, you have to the Stars Academy, who's been making a big wave. I did want yes. all of your opinions, but of course, I'm trying to get a hold of Travis here. Well, we could well, talk while he's uh, while you're trying. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what were you saying, Jennifer? First, I, I was saying yes. I I have been following to the stars, and I think that um, they have done a lot of good to separate fact from fiction and to bring out the you know important new ways in which we need to look at the UFO topic. In fact, gosh, they've gotten the Navy to do an about face and finally come forward and say pilots are allowed to report UFOs. I guess they thought like a year and a half after their pilots did report stuff and footage was released, it was time to come clean and uh, allow those pilots the privilege of reporting the material since it was released by Luis Elizondo in the New York Times on December 16th. But I think like what I love about TSA is they've come up with important terminology. They've come up with five new categories to define UFO activity. You know, instantaneous acceleration, something that demonstrates supersonic speeds or hypervelocity around 3,000 miles per second. That's significant. It has no known, you know, uh, visible propulsion systems. It appears to be have some kind of anti-gravitic abilities. No traditional aircraft, you know, has things like that. It's a non-traditional shape aircraft, like a disc. It has cloaking abilities. It appears and disappears. And it has trans-medium travel abilities. So it goes underwater, up in the air, into outer space seamlessly and instantaneously. So, you know, these are things that when we're talking about UFOs, we have to really, you know, let's hone in to the specifics. This is what they're saying is important. And they're also saying if we don't consider that to be a threat to our national military, then maybe we ought to. Uh, so I think they're what they're doing is they're bringing out to the news medias and the news media is covering it more seriously than ever before. Uh, the real specific core meat of this topic. And uh, uh, yeah, Jennifer, have you ever considered the idea that what they're releasing recently is all they have or nearly all they have? No, this is a this is a um uh, the tip of the iceberg. And I'll tell yeah. you, I hosted Luis Elizondo. I ran the National Symposium for MUFON in uh, 2018 in Philadelphia. And I had the chance to speak privately with Luis. And of course, I heard him speak openly. And he had to be very, very guarded with his words, with his descriptions, what he discussed, what he didn't discuss. And the whole article that came out on December 16th, that was a very orchestrated process 
process with the media, this wasn't mm-hmm. just a little fly-by-night article. You know, the New York mm-hmm. Times was researching this over a year, and there were contracts back and forth in emails and discussions with who would be the one to release it. Actually, um, George Knapp was about to release stuff like this, and, and he was actually phoned by Senator Harry Reid and said, no, 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 let the New York Times release it. This has got to be orchestrated. We, you know, we'll, we'll do a private interview with you uh, uh, like a week later. So you'll have, you know, a special bird in your back pocket. But but class was fit to be tied. He was, he, I, you know, he was, I mean, George Knapp, he was ready to... Uh, to release this and really quite frustrated that he wasn't going to be able to. So to come out and finally begin to bring the real facts to the surface yes. uh, is huge. And this was deliberate and it was orchestrated by people inside military yeah. secret programs that want this information out. They think it's about time. And it's a trickle. It's a, it's trick. a trickle. Yes. And it's by the way, we trickle. we might have lost Travis, by the way. I've been calling him. Nonstop. I, I think he might have just been, maybe just left the room. Or him, he, uh, if he was still listening and on the call, he might have bumped his mute phone, but then he'd hear us talking. So mm. Vanessa in the well, chat room says Travis got abducted again. I can try to text him a little bit. Yeah, you go ahead if yeah. you want. We, we, and I'll let I'll let Michael uh, talk a little bit, or, or you know, Mike uh, Rogers, if he wants to talk about what his opinion of, you know, uh, the Nimitz footage, yes. December sixteenth, and and even what's come out since then. You know, yep. Kevin Day has had a lot to say as well, the radar operator. Yeah, Mike, uh, we we we've got about twenty minutes or so, Mike. I think we could okay. we could handle this, my friend. And yes, lots yeah. of things going on with To the Stars Academy with Tom DeLong of all people. I've never Mm -hmm. thought that he would be leading the way, but he has done some good. I've been quite critical of the whole thing merely because the government has done this sort of thing before where they set out these people for with the whole disinformation sort of a mission. Yeah. Really. And that's where my mind goes to when I think of uh, this camp now aligning themselves with the government and the army, whatever it is, the Navy now, whatever it is, I'm just quite... I'm just a little bit concerned if if this is actually a legit thing or if this is something that is being used as disinfo. Mike, I think you might be aligned with that view as well. Well, I have a whole lot of theories, uh, actual (laughs) more than theories. I have uh, proof. In fact, I have a completely different concept about debunkers, and I've said some of that on your show and and, uh, on several other shows. I believe now, uh, and the further we go into the future, the more I'm convinced that Philip Class was not really a debunker. He was a pseudo-debunker. And everybody says, no, no, no. He he, he wasn't just a debunker. He was terribly uh, egotistical. You know, well, yeah, sure. But I think it was an act. I really do, because everything he had to say against us could could be put down very easily just simply by being a little bit smart and seeing that what he was saying was just completely off track. And he said things that could have been said uh, or are very much harder to prove, but he said things that were easy to prove. And one of those examples is uh, he had this thing that he said right there on Larry King Live uh, and and, and in in his book, uh, uh, more than one book. And he said that he had talked to or he talked about this conversation where he doesn't say where it came from. What it came from was from Bill's Berry, Bill Berry's book, which is called The Ultimate Encounter. It, it was a book that actually came out a few months before our book, uh, The Walton Experience, came out. 
And in that book, Billsbury's book, uh, there's this where uh, Billsbury quoted this uh, conversation between uh, Steve Pierce and I, where Steve Pierce had called me on the phone, or I'd called him. Anyway, uh, it was it was recorded, and uh, what Steve Pierce, I asked Steve Pierce, do you are you really going to take this money? You know, and, and even though you know it really happened, and Steve said I was thinking about it, and so I said, well then you're going to be bruised. And and uh, you'll spend the money alone. Well, <laughs> right there in Bill Berry's book, there's proof of what was actually said. The whole conversation is there. But in Phil Class's book and on Larry King Live, he says that, that he leaves out that very, very important line. Uh, Even though you know this really happened, he leaves that completely out. It changed the entire tone, uh, the entire meaning of that conversation that – and. Uh, you can just imagine what, what it was like without that. Another way Phil Klaus said it, uh, Steve Pierce and Mike Rogers had this conversation, and Mike says, are you, are you going to take that money? And and, and this is the way Steve, uh, Phil Klaus says it. Uh, and Steve says, yeah, I was thinking about it. Well, then you're going to be bruised. See, he just left out that most important part and made it look like I was trying to intimidate him. I was mad because why? Because Phil, in Phil Klaus's mind, it was all a lie, and, and I feel like Steve was thinking about ratting us out. You know, uh, Mike. I'm sorry to interrupt. Mike, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I believe we have Travis back on the line. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. What's up, Travis? Yeah, that was uh, that was an, a real significant fraud of Philip Classes. You know, to 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 take a quotation and actually alter it in order to reverse its meaning. Oh man, what a sneaky! Amazing. Oh, he did that a lot. I I read the the, the letter transcripts back and forth, uh, like almost ten years of them <laughs> between Mike like Rogers. Whole, yeah, and a couple uh, of I, books worth. It, it is. It, 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 I, he just I, conveniently I mean, leaves out, even though you know it really happened, and would do it just for the money. Right, and my and Mike uh, <laughs> oh, Travis. Man. While you were gone, we were talking about the latest sort of mainstream media frenzy with ufology and the latest coming from to the stars academy with uh, tom the long front man of blink 182 of all people i never thought i'd be saying this but he's been doing quite well I, I would have to say give him some credit but i've also been sort of weary anytime the government gets involved more so than i would like them to and as we know these things have been going on the cia is also someone who's been a part of disinformation for many, many years. If you look back through history, you could see this for yourself. It's it's out there. It's something that they had made well, up in the past. It's my belief times. that they were the ones uh, uh, supplying, bankrolling the $10,000 bribe that uh, class offered to Steve. That, well, there you go. So it's hard. It's hard for me uh, to trust the government with this sort of thing because they lied before. So I think, well, why aren't they lying about this now? Why would they just be uh, so open about this subject that they've lied uh, time and time well, again? Before? You know, it's possible that they've seen the error of their ways. You know, Maybe. they were focusing on discrediting the witnesses, and it turns out that all they were succeeding in doing is discrediting themselves. People were starting to 
not believe the government. So they figured, hmm, we'd better just take a different tact. So that December 16th uh, release of the uh, Navy uh, jet gunfighter, right. uh, you know, gun camera footage um, was released on a Friday afternoon, which is what is done when you want minimum impact. You want it out there, but you want it to have as little impact as possible. News release later on a Friday, it dies down before Monday rolls around. Interesting. And of course... Yeah, but that isn't the end result, though. This has remained. It has become mainstream now. Uh, For a year now, they keep showing it over and over. And the thing of it is, that isn't mistrusting the government. That's actual footage. That constitutes proof. Yeah, um, I, I'm hearing your skepticism, Michael. Uh, sure, I'm sure you do. Yes. And I, I, I don't know that I can really accurately address it, but. Well, I mean, um, we're basing it off the, of footage that's extremely grainy and extremely hard to tell. Oh, uh, to, no, 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 no. This, this is footage. gun footage. This is. This yeah, is but what, you would, you would expect to have better footage than that. No, this is, this, uh, what you're looking at is infrared footage. And uh, special special camera footage that hones down and takes in data. There there is other footage, but that wasn't released. But, but the why not? That you're looking at is very specific radar imagery footage. Yeah, but why haven't we seen the better, clear, high def uh, imagery or video of because said you're going to get in a trickle. Well, I I can uh, postulate that possibly it it would compromise uh, military advantages, you know, to let them know just exactly how good our uh, Navy gun camera footage is. You know, Um, it's it's very similar to footage that's been released even by Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more than more than our government. And I I don't really look at TSA as as an official government release. These are people who have worked in high levels of government. I mean, Chris Mellon was a former deputy assistant secretary of defense, you know, under Clinton and Bush. So but and Luis Elizondo left his post. He worked for the Pentagon uh, with the Advanced uh, Aerial Threat Detection Program. So he's out of the government. Steve Justice used to work for uh, a program with Lockheed Martin, but not specifically with the government. And how put off, he he was up at uh, Stanford. It's at, uh, you know, um, the, the Stanford Research Institute doing, you know, psychic research and things like that. So the only other one is Jim Semivan. He was the former Central Intelligence Agency senior member. But these people have left their posts. Now, they have still some friends and some contacts. Context, but the disclosure they are making is not is not the government making the disclosure. They have negotiated with the government. This is what Luis Elizondo did before he left his post. The the release of that footage was negotiated when he left the Pentagon, and people inside the Pentagon said, "Yes, you can release the footage, and you can release the story." And he got permission to do it. Amazing. And of course, there was Edward Snowden who recently made comments as well. He said that the government doesn't have any footage or not footage, I should say um, any data or anything on file rather about UFOs or ET. And it's quite interesting that he made that comment on Joe Rogan's podcast, really. I don't really listen to that, but someone sent me a clip and I did hear that. Did you happen to hear that sort of uh, clip yourself, Jennifer? 
Well, I'll tell you that I, I did not hear that clip, but I know well from being a good friend of Nick Pope's that governments certainly research this material and keep it and try to evaluate it. And they actually have a, a formula or a theory to evaluate these threats. Basically, they, they look at it first and say, okay, does this UO, UAP or UFO demonstrate some sort of superior maneuverability? You know, can it outpace our jets? Is it, you know, a higher technology than we have? And then the second major question they ask uh, strategically is, does it demonstrate any kind of intent to harm us? You know, does it attack us first or is it evasive? Well, clearly, the interactions we have had for decades have been evasive. They, it's it's the higher intelligence species here that's controlling disclosure. They don't want to, you know, let their technologies out. They don't want to really interact with us. But they do engage with us enough to let us know that they are kind of in control, meaning that they will take out Minuteman missiles, which they did all throughout the 60s. They will go after missiles when we shoot them up. And this military exercise that was going on with the Nimitz in 2004 off the coast of California, that wasn't one incident. Well, what, what we get in the news is this dribble down effect. And we think, OK, there was one encounter with one jet and they filmed this thing on their gun footage and they locked onto it and it went down to the ocean floor and then back up into the sky instantaneously. There wasn't one thing. Yeah, and I've it seen, wasn't one day. Yeah, I've there seen were multiple. hundreds of UFOs and it went on over a whole week and they had to cancel their maneuvers. Yeah, that's one there, thing I was going to quickly. These exercises going was, on and. And they got canceled for the whole week. And then the same thing happened again on the East Coast in 2016 or 17. So, yeah, I've seen know. I've seen that sort of footage uh, from various places and locations as well of a, of a craft of such going into the water and back out. Pretty interesting, I'd say. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't exactly uh, I'm not challenging that at all because I clearly see, see that for myself. I, I'm just wanting better footage of it. That's all. I think what well, most people really want is for the government to come loose with everything. That's what, that too, that's what they've been sure. wanting forever. But the thing of it is, that's not going to happen. And people now are, are not really taking for seriously what's really going on. This, this trickling uh, disclosure, everybody's kind of poo-pooing that. Well, you know, this is the real thing. By the way, this reminds me of a conversation I briefly had with uh, Gary McKinnon, if, if you Maybe recall who he is. He's listened yes. to, yeah, he's listened to the show a number of times. And uh, going back to what he discovered when he hacked military computers, the biggest of all time back in 2001, and he made claims of finding all sorts of data on anti-gravity technology, suppression of free energy, and even made claims of seeing crafts that did not look man-made. And, you know, I would assume if these claims were true and he did get arrested after all, and he did do time, and his life was turned upside down because of this, and he wouldn't even appear on this program because of his life being turned upside down because of the hacking that he did. I would have to assume the U.S. government and military would have to change some of their protocol and, of course, maybe not store those sort of files on any computer. That's what I personally think. So if uh, Edward Snowden did do some... Uh, exploring, I'm pretty sure he probably wouldn't find anything of that nature on any computer. That's just my theory, though. I could be wrong. 
Well, he certainly did the government a favor, Gary McKinnon, because he let them know how easy it was for them to discover some of this information. Um, you know, whether or not we are really uh, off planet, as uh, people like uh, Michael Sala writes about, and even Richard Dolan says there's probably a breakaway society right. that's going on, you know, if that exists, um, it's very hard for the mainstream, you and I, to to deal with that when we're still debating whether or not Travis's polygraph on the <laughs> TV show was real. You maybe you get my drift here. Right, there are right. very very serious things that we need to begin to digest and understand as a public and take seriously. And if we're going to spend our time focused on whether or not a polygraph was real when we know it was fake, um, we're kind of barking down the wrong tree. But I I think that yes, there are some serious questions we need to look at. And many people are fearful that what is coming out now uh, with people like people in the TSA, that we're being set up. I mean, they have a whole television show now called Unacknowledged, right, where all these TSA guys are, mm. are on the show and they're talking about their research. Are we being set up with a uh, with a public mindset to be prepared for some kind of false flag situation? I don't where, think so. Where we could be then forced to fight against some sort of invading enemy, but it might be like a false flag. And it's a way to kind of unite us all and get us all to focus on a bigger picture because we all have to be united. Amazing. No, and, and we, I don't think that's what it is at all. Well, I, uh, I have no idea, but this is some of the theories that have been floated around. Right. I, yeah. just, I just got off a cruise where I sat up and spoke very, very late with – well, I didn't think you – you didn't get up to the top deck, Travis, did you, with Linda Howe well, and some of the other people? Well, the trouble with some of these ridiculous conspiracy theories is that yeah. it makes real conspiracies easier to hide. You're because right. all you got to right. do is say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. And then your conspiracy is all covered up. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. And um, um, I, re I regret to say this, but we definitely are out of time here. I wish okay. we could talk even longer. It's been a delightful conversation with you three. And as we close this up for uh, this evening. Jennifer, I want to start with you. Any parting ways before we close up? I definitely want you to plug any of the events that we briefly spoke about. Go ahead and do well, that now. I'll just mention anyone who lives in the New York City area. Uh, tomorrow, there will be a screening in honor of the 44th anniversary of Travis's experience. They'll, we'll screen the Travis film with the group in New York called Disclosure Network New York. It's a D dnny.info it's nick curto and he will be screening the film tomorrow and then travis will do a q a via skype uh after that i'll be on introducing it ahead of time so that's something coming up also uh next wednesday on the actual anniversary the 44th anniversary travis walton and i Mike Rogers on, on Tuesday, excuse me, on Tuesday, we'll be on the uh, Alan Smith radio show on KGRA. Paranormal Now. Paranormal Now. So those are important things. And if people listening want to see the film, they can buy it from Travis's website at TravisWalton.com or they can go to TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. They can buy a DVD there too, or they can click on a link with Amazon um, and you know, stream the film on Amazon to see it if they're interested. So those are the most important things to let people know. Amazing. It's been an honor and pleasure to talk to you, Jennifer and Mike. Go ahead. Any closing thoughts 
or opinions, any final words, basically. Go ahead. Stage is yours. Well, um, I I have this new show, of course, uh, which uh, I had last night, and uh, we're we're going to be doing that show every week. Uh, it comes on KGRA. It's called The Realist, and it's going to be uh, ten uh, ten to midnight Eastern, and I think that's somewhere around uh, either seven or eight o'clock uh, Mountain Standard Time for a start. And basically, what that is is it's uh, what Michael Shermer isn't, or what UFO gurus are not. It's kind of like in the middle of the road. In other words, I'm what I am is I'm a believing realist, not a skeptic. And that's exactly what the show is about. And it's for the purpose of unraveling nonsense. Uh, the other people, everybody seems to be pitted one way or the other. They don't, they're, they're either a Michael Shermer or they're a total believer like that. And they talk about the middle of the road, but very few people ever see it or, or do it, you know. Uh, that's exactly what I intend to do with this show. And uh, you're going to see some surprising things as a result, but that's what's going on. And, of course, like Jennifer mentioned, we're going to be on, on air there uh, on KGRA this coming Tuesday. I believe that's at 10 to midnight. I think it is. Uh, and it's called Paranormal Now with Alan B. Smith. Uh, and that's the, 40, the 44th actual uh, commemoration of the event that happened right on that date, November 5th. So that's coming up. Right. And Travis is also going to speak for Phoenix MUFON on December 7th. So anyone in the Phoenix area, if they want to see and meet Travis and hear him speak, he'll be there with Phoenix MUFON. Amazing. And my, my final words are just, uh, you know, if you're going to judge any of this stuff, get the facts first. Mm. Make sure they're actually facts and make sure you have all the facts. And then if if you if you don't know... Um, uh, good reasoning practices, logical, critical thinking, then then the facts aren't going to do you any good anyway. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, Travis, I do want to thank you tremendously also for being a part of the program. It's been a great time. And hopefully we could do this again, but next time with Dr. Michael Shermer. Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. Hopefully I could convince him to jump in here. And Jennifer, of course, I do want you to return as well. And we could talk about all sorts of things going on with you. And Mike, the same thing. I mean, all of you guys could return again. I, let's just be realistic here. It's uh, It was fun. Uh, did, did you guys have fun? No, it was a lot of fun. You bet. Yeah. Did you covered yeah. a lot of ground tonight. We sure did. Travis, did you have fun out there? Oh, I loved it. Oh, I loved it. This was great. And I can't wait to do this again with all of you. Well, yeah. Thanks for giving us the opportunity, Mike. Yeah, no I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And I want all of you to be safe. And of course, I look forward to the next time we do this. All right. Good. See you later. All right. God bless all of you. Good, good night. night. All right. Good night. And there they go, boys and girls. That was Mr. Mike Rogers and, of course, Mr. Travis Walton. I uh, love talking to all of them and Jennifer as well. Jennifer Stein, great, great people. Love talking to all of them. And, of course, love seeing all of you in the chat room as well. So much fun. Definitely want to thank them again for being a part of the program and all of you and the international listeners out there as well, those in the U.K., those in Germany, France. And Canada, love the Canadians out there as well, and definitely want to thank the Fringe FM. And don't forget, if you do like the program and you are a fan, why not sign up for Patreon, where you can find bonus content if you do like this program. And uh, trust me, it's good. 
It's really good. It's worth the price, I promise, boys and girls. And yes, that's a lovely song playing in the background now. This is just for the hardcore listeners out there, and I've been very happy to report that the Patreon has been doing quite well. Quite well. The shows so far have been fantastic, and if you are a fan, don't be shy. Patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. Do we have neighbors in the cosmos, or is their existence no more than a mirror of our fantasies, folks? I don't know. What do you think? I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody.